check. Okay, I think they're working. There was a point in time when I was writing um, some of the Japanese names down Mm -hmm. that I literally just had to do it phonetically for me. Like the the one ship, the Shikaku, Mm -hmm. it's just literally Shikaku. Yeah. (laughs) It's either Shikaku or Shokaku. It depends on, I guess, who you... Oh, I see where you actually wrote it. Right. Shikaku. (laughs) That was... I, I wrote... I wrote some of them. Why does it say Sheacock on your board? Like, it's it's for pronunciation It's purposes. a Japanese ship, goddammit. Oh. Do you have anything you would like to discuss before getting into this? I mean, I found out this week that I'm the black angel of death for horses. Yeah, you, you mentioned that. Go, Please elaborate on that. So, are you going to be a Are you going to be allowed going forward to purchase stake in any type of... I'm waiting to get that related activities. So it, it was just the weirdest thing ever because the first one got the the twirlies or whatever they called it. And Do horses have like a yips? Is do they call it the twirlies? No, it, it's called the wobbles. Like as they walk, but is the, it like the yips? Um, the yips is more like they just get too excited at the gate. You can't put them in the the shoot for a. Oh, I meant like, is it akin to like professional sports yips? Like, it's just something like, it's not mental, it's a physical thing. This one, the the first one that is out to pasture now, hopefully, um, it was just called the wobbles. And it's like a central nervous thing where, like, where they're running. Their equilibrium's not on. Yeah, you know how, like, you can try to keep your pace with two feet? Well, they're Yeah, like you're already putting weight on one foot when that one's Like how you're able to shift. It's things that you probably don't notice your body doing Mm -hmm. that keeps you upright, yeah. So that's what ended the first one's career, which was nice because got I got... The speed wobbles. It was too fast. Yeah. So I got 80% of that money back, which was great, I guess. Um, and then used that to buy into a bigger horse that was more expensive. A d- decent amount more expensive. So what, what uh, percentage of this horse did you own? Uh, not a lot. I think it was 1%. Do you, did they tell you where on the horse you owned? No, we already went through. I that understand that. I just think it's funny. Just, I just think it's funny to think about that. Yeah. So, uh, what was this? I think it was Wednesday. <laughs> I get an update saying your new horse. Show your cards. Um, this was at four sixteen. Uh, this morning, show your cards was discovered in an uncomfortable state. When the barn was going through its routine morning check with the two-year-old Colt only being in light training at the moment, it leads the barn to believe he got a cast in his stall. So, like, he was laying too close to the wall Mm -hmm. during the night, and he went to get up, and he couldn't, like, stretch his legs out. So he kicked the wall and shattered his fibula. And so so that was the... Oh, because there's probably no give to those walls. No, I, they're probably just big, strong. Oh, probably like railroad ties. Yeah. And granted, horses are very strong, but a railroad tie can hold That's up gonna, but that. it's not gonna. Yeah, it's not gonna give. So that was four sixteen p.m. Um, Seven oh one. Show your cards was transported. Got its X-ray. Who found sends the you shoulder. These, Who sends you these messages? That website that you do the okay. micro shares through. <laughs> Doctors expressed significant concern, stating that there is a life-threatening injury due to the weight-bearingness. The humerus is what he broke. Um, we were exploring all options to save show your cards with both Dr. 
da-da, doctor, da-da, and we'll do everything we can, but ultimately we have to do what's in the best interest of the horse. First one is 4 o'clock. This one is 7.01. Um, 8.36. It is with sadness in our hearts that under the advice from both veterinarians and the equine hospital, show your cards was humanely euthanized. They said they were going to explore all options. It took them an hour and 35 minutes to be like, eh, maybe we just shoot him. <laughs> okay, I got I got a few horse-related questions here. And I, I have been to horse races and everything, but I have no idea about, like, I guess the value ratio, whatever you want to call it. So a horse in that situation, are horses not able to, like, have their bones reset or like legs put in casts or anything like that is it just if a horse breaks any part of its leg or something it's just it's done yeah because horse well it Do, depends i mean that across the board for like if someone has a horse in a like at a farm that they ride if that horse breaks its leg is it or is this just a racehorse thing i i would have to assume that it has to be everybody because i, I get like their bones are obviously much thicker than human beings and all that kind of stuff but and it's their only mode of transit to you know get around. So yeah, they can't limp. You can't put them like on crutches. I've seen, yeah, but I've seen like you know you can get someone with a broken leg put in a hard cast and they're able to move on. It's a, not a comfortable. No, but an average horse, an adult horse, weighs six hundred and sixty pounds, and that's just an average horse. That's not a thoroughbred. That's not a race horse. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of weight that's to true. be putting on your only mode yeah, of transportation. That's true. Okay, other other question. So, horses have four legs, right? Uh-huh. Are all of their bones, both rear legs and front legs, are those referred to as leg bones like tibia, fibula? Is it, what is it in your leg? It's your femur is your big one. Your Down tibia lower. and your fibula are your shin. I think I so. Think and for your arm, it's your there. radius and your humerus. Your humerus and your ulna? I think that's, yeah. And then what's this one called? Uh, I'm not I thought that one was the ulna. And then radius and like something. Okay, yeah. So yeah. on a horse, though, is it called that on both sets? Fibia, tibia, I, I don't know about the back one. I would assume it would have had to have been the front one. Just because, well, but, I don't know. I guess it could have been a back one. No, no, but what I'm saying is that, yeah. Do they call all four, all of the bones in each set? Because are the bones all pretty similar? I mean, they're different, of course. They, they're different lengths and everything. But do they refer to all four legs? I don't think so, because they would consider it a shoulder and then a hip. That's what I'm saying. So, so horses have a tibia and a fibia and a radius and an ulna. Or... That's a great question. I guess they do kind of have arms and legs in that sense. But not really. We're getting into evolution here. I know. Because it's a four-legged animal. Like, do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, here? We, we used to be, though. Yeah, that's true. That's why we have tailbones. That is why we all have tailbones. Speaking you have of anything sp- this week? No, I'm so fucking excited about this. Like, I just, all my energy is into this. I was about to segue. I was about to say, speaking of tailbones. I'm telling you about my tail, dead horse, and you're just over there like, I'm fucking up, chomping bro. at the bit. I'm sorry about your horse, man, but your horse is dead. Well, hopefully not all of the money that I invested in him is dead as well. They'll get, they'll get insurance payout and then be able to pay the people for insurance, right? Out yeah, insurance but it's payout. insurance minus, like, all the fees that you've already paid. So, like, for hay and storage and all mm-hmm. that shit. So, I'll say this. I don't think you have the black hand of death yet. I think if you go three for three on these horses, then 
we probably just don't do horses anymore. So I got to get a third. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You can't be. You can't. Two. Listen. One is a uh, bad luck. Two coincidence. Three. There's there's something following you around. <laughs> I might not be legally able to own a fourth after that. That's true. They might just go through the list and they probably keep track of people's <laughs> ownership and what happened to the horse. They're like, yeah, hey man, we're gonna we're gonna recommend uh, maybe a greyhound or something like that. <laughs> different different type of racing. Okay. Anyway. Hmm. This one is my, this one I told you is, is like OJ for you. I'm so happy for you because I remember how much I enjoyed that. All right. So today I was going to segue and say, do you know who didn't tuck or who did tailbone tuck tail after this battle and ran? Um, We're talking about midway today. people consider to be probably the the most pivotal point in world war ii during the battle the war in the pacific different things happened over in the war in europe and everything like that but this was kind of the point in which the japanese navy who had been from pearl harbor completely just dominating and being able to kind of impose their will this was the first time that they actually lost and received a loss severe enough that it actually changed completely changed the course of the the rest of the war for Japan and for the United States. I have a question and then a comment. Um, do you think there's something kind of poetically cool about the Battle of the Midway being like the midway point when the tide started to really turn in that Pacific theater. I think it is kind of cool. And it was just simply called midway because honestly it was like midway between, I want to say like Hawaii. No, it was only a thousand, like 1100 miles off Hawaii, which they refer to. And they say it was just 1100 miles from Hawaii. Cause it was at the very Hawaii is what they consider like a, what do they call an archipelago? Yeah. A chain of islands. Yeah. It's just a huge one. So midway, they still consider it to be at the tail end. So 1100 miles is the tail end. <laughs> But it was midway, I think they want to say midway between maybe the United States and Japan or Or it could have been like Hawaii and the Philippines Mm -hmm. or another base that they had out there. Yeah, I mean, here's what you got to remember is, man, this is the Pacific Ocean. It's the largest ocean. And it was just this like, this wasn't like, you know, there wasn't satellites to track enemy fleets and everything like this. This was all either by... The Americans, and I'll talk about kind of advantages and disadvantages, but the Japanese didn't have radar. Which shocked me. But then I kind of have to remember, like, every time I go through something like this or every time we talk about World War II, mm-hmm. it's, it makes me think, like, the last 20 years of our lives in, like, inventions and different yeah. technologies has just been warp speed. Mm-hmm. Back then, when they hit radar, it's like, oh, my God, we found radar. That's the only thing or one of the only things that saved um, England yeah. during the, the Battle of Britain and everything was the fact that they – and during, like, the Blitz when they were getting bombed by the Germans is they the, – the British, I think, are the ones that invented radar. It might have been with some help from America, but I, I want to say that it was the British out of necessity, and they would have radar stations on the coast – be able to detect these huge waves of bombers coming from France, German bombers. And that way they would be able to launch the RAF pilots, the Royal Air Force, 
fighters and intercept so many. I mean, they still took a ton of damage, but it allowed them a ton of time. And do you know the saying that uh, carrots are really good for your eyesight? How is that a saying or is that a doctor it's thing? It's not a doctor thing. Are you serious? Yes, it I came, so from, came from World War II. So the Germans were trying to figure out how the British were able to spot their planes so far out. And the British made up this thing about they eat their carrots, which improves their vision. It's just like they were dropping on them during uh, the last one that we did in that theater. Um Oh, the Ghost uh, Army. Yes. Yeah. They were just running, mm-hmm. talking shit on pirate radio. Yes. So, okay. So what was your, your other part? Oh, my comment? Yes. I love that these are called theaters. Like, how mm-hmm. cool is that that you have like the... A theater of war? Yeah. And it's not cool because it is war and it is terrible, but it's just kind of the perfect encapsulation of like when you go to the theater, the theater is where all the action happens. It's so crazy to think that there was a war in which there had to be separate theaters because it was literally a world war. You had the Pacific theater, you had the European theater. Um, I don't know if they considered it the Russian theater because the allies, it was just Russia, technically the allies, but it wasn't the like Americans and British and everything together. You had the African or South Wait, North African theater, which was, and then like the Mediterranean theater. It's just so cool that you can break it down. Mm-hmm. It, it Arguably it sucks because there shouldn't be that much war going on yeah. at once, but that you can encapsulate just an area where they had their own, uh, all of these theaters had like remarkable battles, wars, and the fights. Pac- the Pacific theater was enormous. I mean, think of it. I don't think anything really happened between the continental U S and Hawaii but the Pacific Theater that actually saw action, it was all the way up to um, the Aleutian, Aleutian Island chain, which is that big, long island chain that comes off, stretching out into the Pacific from Alaska. Yeah. So then that's going to come into play on this. So In a very all, dumb way. Yeah. So it was all the way up there and then literally all the way down to... Australia, wasn't it? Australia, New Zealand, because Japan essentially had established itself, kind of their thing... Okay, sorry. We'll go back. What was your com- was your comment just about the theater? Yeah, thing? just it, okay. it's so awesome that we figured out a word that fits it so cool. Like the juxtaposition of war and theater seems to be mm-hmm. very big, but it just fits. Yeah, it's such a cool word to use. So I'm gonna because I'll we'll talk about this hopefully in like another topic if if I have my way, but I'll just kind of lead up to what leads up to midway. So. As everyone knows or should know, December 7th, 1941, that's when Japan attacks Pearl Harbor. And their their main plan on this, and I see you have that written up, was to basically try to neutralize as much of the American Pacific Fleet, which would then allow them pretty much free, whatever they call that, carte blanche, freedom, freedom to do anything within the Pacific and establish anything they needed to for supply chains without interference. Because then the only people they were really fighting against were the British had sent, because they were trying to protect at that point, like the Dutch East Indies, things like that. British, I think British um, government still had a hand in India, Australia, obviously New Zealand, yeah. the Philippines, I think. The f- and so Philippines, you had, I think, were the French, weren't they? Maybe not. French Polynesia, are you thinking? Could be. Uh, yeah, it might have just been the English. So, but yeah, the Philippines were huge in that area too, because that was... This, this, the entire Pacific battle was just island hopping. That's all it was. It was either a few sea battles or island hopping. And 
so I mean, there was a huge area. So you had some British Navy helping with like Australia and in the kind of the Indian Ocean area. Mm-hmm. So, but for the most part in the Pacific, it was either Japan or it was the United States. And so Japan figured if they took out the Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor, it would basically force the United States to either come to them for a treaty, except that all of the land they had claimed at that point was then going to be theirs by right. And um, Japan wanted to create this thing. They called it the Eastern Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. They had a really nice sounding name for it because they wanted everybody that they had taken over to feel like it was all in their best interest. It was the prosperity sphere for everybody. Yeah, everybody was going to share the co-prosperity. Mm-hmm. So when they launched their attack on Pearl Harbor, it wasn't just us that got hit. There, we got hit with the brunt, the largest portion of the force. It was called the Kita Butai. Six aircraft carriers, super advanced too. They had the most advanced carriers. And Were they at that time probably the most able naval force in the world? Had America been able to focus solely on the Pacific and not have to also have, because you're free, you know, a lot of people remember at this time that there was a ton of United States naval resources being used to transport so many goods across the Atlantic. They were, oh. you know, they had all their destroyers con, um, guarding convoys of ships going through. You had battleships helping over in the European um, kind of theater or at least escorting troop transports and everything. So there was a good chunk. And you also had a lot of like naval shipyards being on the East Coast. So for ships to come through, they had to either come through, I want to say, was Panama Canal done at this point? We got to do an episode on that because that's fascinating too. So this isn't going to be a huge, if I'm wrong or if I'm right in this scenario, they would either have to go all the way down around the Strait of Magellan or Panama Canal. Which still takes a a long time. Correct. So a lot of the ships would have to, you know, aircraft carriers and not. They did have... Um, shipyards in Seattle, in the Puget Sound, and then uh, Pearl Harbor could do could do repairs, but it wasn't a manufacturing facility. You, they they weren't building ships there. And I wonder if they had the naval base down in San Diego. On they, I believe they did. Yeah, yeah. So basically, the Japanese plan is they're hoping to catch not only all of the battleships but also the American carriers because I think Japan had kind of realized before we did that it was going to be naval air superiority, which dictated the result of battles going forward for, for naval fighting. World War One didn't have aircraft carriers and may, they may have had one, but it was for like biplanes or maybe that even happened with the British in World War II. They were taken off biplanes on it because they don't take, a, they're lightweight. They would strap a torpedo on it. They could take off from a short distance. That's how they actually sunk the Bismarck. The German, the big yeah. famous German battleship was with biplanes. Huh. So... Can that that's so crazy that like we went from a war in which airplanes were first introduced in World War One and now in World War Two we're already like we're fucking putting these on planes or on ships now. We're well, taking and them in off the ships. span of what, two decades? Yep. Airplane technology <laughs> advanced so much to where now you have long range bombers that could travel, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of miles to bomb another country and then fly back. Um, you had fighters and, and bombers and torpedo bombers that could take off of a ship and land on a ship. And it could, and it could, you know, can you imagine the tests for that? The time to build the ship, even the time to build the elevators, the research in itself, you're like, how much room do you need to take off? So we need to design a ship because a lot of these, especially on the Japanese side, they would, they started building up their naval forces long in advance. 
Mm-hmm. You got uh, and being surrounded by water and having such little land to protect. You, would they're want they're already a, a naval. Navy. They're already used to being a naval power. And the, their biggest thing was they had to take over other countries to for resources because Japan wasn't going to be able to be self sufficient for resources. No. That's half the reason they went into China. They took over like the Dutch East Indies, the Philippines. There was a ton of oil in that area, so they were sending crude oil back for fuel for all their fleet and everything, and then raw materials to keep building the planes, keep building the ships. And a lot of the carriers, or some of the carriers that the Japanese had, started out as battle battleships. Yeah. And before they had the tops put on them, they then turned them into carriers because they're like, hold on a second. Carriers or battleships were the superpower during World War One. It was gun, big guns. The bigger the guns you could get on the ship, the better. And it was a lot of just like, you could see the enemy, but you know, that's why you had the lookouts up high so they could see over the horizon. You put the bridge up way yep. high. And it was literally just naval gun battles. So that was like naval doctrine at that point. So you still had countries that hadn't kind of taken the hint or kind of seen the writing on the wall. Um, Germany had a ton of, like, not a ton, but they had a pretty sizable navy, there, and but they focused on battleships. And, I think they had like one carrier. Well, and they were more focused on like U-boats and submarines. Yes, they because were more they were like so much easier to attack. manufacture and they could do a ton of them. And, and also, they're, at the time when they are having, before they could like conquer France, before they had taken over France, mm-hmm. Germany doesn't have like huge access to the sea. Everything was built up river on the Rhine River in and shipyards, sailed up and then out into the open ocean. So it still had to be small enough to go down the river to get out to the ocean. You could build a huge, they built the, some of the biggest battleships in World War II and they still made them. Down and they got them down the Rhine River. It was a huge. It's a huge river, man. And, oh, and the shipyards it? weren't far from it. It was a large section. Think of like the Columbia River okay. or something like that. I mean, you could get a huge boat up there. So, I'll I'll talk about the leading up a little bit because there's a lot just in the battle itself. But so they would make these um, battleships. They started to convert some of them into aircraft carriers before they were done. So they their carrier strength. They kind of knew that we're landlocked, you know, we're a small island country. We need to be able to have places where we can launch air superiority from. They were very rigid about like their naval doctrine, and that's going to come into play during the battle and be one of like the turning points during the battles, how rigid they were. It's um you kind of touched on a little bit with like Japanese culture and everything. So they were super innovative as far as their like their they had the biggest battleship that ever existed, the largest gun that ever existed on a ship. Um, their carriers were huge. They were the biggest carriers. The planes that they had, like their the Zero fighter, their main fighter. The Mitsubishis. Yep, Mitsubishi Zero. The same thing that made one of the most superior, like, defense planes, I guess you would call it. Mm-hmm. Also made the Mitsubishi Eclipse. Yeah. It's crazy how many of these, how many of, like, the companies in Japan still exist just they staying just, power they just days. yeah they just changed changed gears and went another direction after the war so the zero was the premier pacific fighter um its speed its power it could turn like none of the americans could it's it was super agile and so if you were in a one-on-one fight against an american plane which were a little bit could absorb more damage were sturdier but not as fast um the advantage was to the zero now because of this it was kind of a, and I'll touch back on this, it gets referenced again. The Zero was kind of a glass jaw fighter. It couldn't take a lot of hits, but it was so nimble and agile that it 
you would have to really land hits on it to be able to. You know. You'd have to be able to almost counter every maneuver to get a shot off. Yep. So each each force here is going to have three different types of planes. They're either going to be a torpedo bomber, a dive bomber, or a fighter. Each side has those. The The Japanese ones were just, they were of such high quality. The other thing, too, is that they had been training these air crews, and these air crews have gotten, you know, they... um would all work like if you were on, let's just say one of the carriers was the Kaga. The air crew and pilots for that ship were assigned to that ship, trained on that ship. And, but if something happened, or let's say that that ship got put out of commission, was in for repairs, you couldn't take the flight crews and move them to another carrier that may have been completely operational, but their flight crew was diminished. They couldn't mix. There was no, like, they didn't fall into a role. They fell into a role on a ship. They had to be with that crew. There was no flexibility. The Americans were completely different. They could take squadrons from different aircraft carriers and just put them on a different carrier. It was so interchangeable. They were able to fill losses a lot easier that way. They were able to bring up people who were, and what that also allowed is that because you had that ability to interchange, you could always have each of your carriers at full strength. Not like they called them air wings, so your air wing wasn't diminished. So if you're you're dry docking a ship, if you're dry docking a carrier, all those guys that work on that carrier just can then just, move out. Yep, not doing anything. Which I think, not to foreshadow anything, but I think is kind of one of their big downfalls of the Japanese fleet mm-hmm. is not only that, but their like their training that they would go through was so regimented, and they were so on top of everything to get on a ship that they didn't have a lot of other people that they could just throw on the ships. Mm -mm. And the other thing that it sounds like is the way that they set them up, I wonder if that helped out the Americans that they could build them after and the Japanese kind of retrofitted some of theirs. Because if you have things in different positions Mm -hmm. or you have different, like, knowledge of where you need to store different things on them. Well, and it comes into play here, like... The Japanese Navy and their process for launching fires, capturing fighters, it was like a um, – it's like the difference between it seems like the comparison that I can make is – you ever watch an F1 pit stop? Yeah. It's like 2.7 seconds, like good ones, 2.9, under three seconds. It's just a ballet. Now compared to a NASCAR pit stop, which I think is around 10 to 12 seconds. Yeah, Maybe. Yeah, so those are those are longer. Sorry if I'm offending. I'm not right on the NAS, but I think that that's a good comparison. So I don't that's think how, we get a lot of NASCAR crossover. <laughs> you don't want to discriminate. <laughs> so that was like the difference, though, between the two is like the Americans were like a NASCAR pit crew in launching, rearming, refueling, and then recovering planes, that kind of stuff. So the Japanese Navy had a ton of advantages going in here. Okay, so getting back to Pearl Harbor. Sorry, I'll stop going off in tangents. Pearl Harbor happens uh, de- uh, the very early morning of December 7, 1941. Six Japanese carriers had set off from northern Japan, and they were parked, I want to say, somewhere between 500 to 600 miles off Pearl. The distances here are kind of like, if you're thinking, you're like, fuck, 500, 600 miles? Yeah, it's 500, 600 miles, but keep in mind that these planes are traveling like 250 miles an hour, maybe a little faster. You would cruise at a certain speed to conserve fuel, so you're not going to run at full clip. Well, and the other beautiful engineering feat of having carriers is Japan knew that they only had so much fuel space in these airplanes. Mm -hmm. So if you can move the runway closer to where your destination is, 
it's going to pay off big because you don't have to have these massive fuel tanks and you can put more bombs or anything else on them because uh, they don't have to fly. They don't uh, have to take off from like Japan. Their, their big thing for, and I'll, I'll jump back into Pearl in a second, their big thing, you know, carrier-based aircraft was really useful, of course, if you're trying to sink the other enemy ships. But the most useful thing about this was you could pull up to an island or pull up to, you know, the piece of land that you're trying to invade, the beach or whatever. You could literally have your carrier-based aircraft fly over and take out all of the defenses, both on the beach, inland, and completely clear that way of any type of, like, enemy presence. Clear a parking spot, basically. Without taking hardly any losses. Then when you land your invasion force, they're able to establish a beachhead, and it's much easier. Mm -hmm. Bring in supplies and everything. So, with Pearl Harbor, so they launched, like, man, it was, like, 300-plus planes at Pearl so that tells you what they could launch off of six aircraft carriers. And just how many they could hold. Yeah. And that's that's what was on there. They had spare planes in the hangars below deck. All of these had like elevators that brought planes up, planes below deck and everything. Spare, that's where they kept all the armaments, spare plane parts mm-hmm. and everything. So like 300 plus planes come into Pearl. And we'll do it, uh, on its own thing on Pearl Harbor. So I'm just going to touch yeah, on it's it. It's going to be a long one. As luck would have it. None of our uh, carriers were in Pearl. They were all out doing maneuvers, just practice and everything. So, the but the thing that was there, we had our entire fleet of Pacific battleships there, destroyers, things like that. Um, eight of our eight of our battleships were hit and sunk. All but three were actually raised, repaired, and took place in World War II. Huh. Um, the Arizona, I think, was the one. I can't remember. That's the one that I think blew almost in half and where the Pearl Harbor Memorial is actually over right now. Um, Sorry, I don't have the, I can't remember, recall the other two, but we'll touch on that Pearl Harbor. When we get into Pearl Harbor, we'll get into that. So basically, but what they also did is they took out airfields. Um, Pearl was basically a feast for the Japanese, and it was the worst situation for the Americans because we knew um, there were reports that the Japanese Pacific Fleet their fleet had moved out. We received reports. And so all stations in the Pacific were on high alert. We did have bases in the Philippines and everything at this point. So there was a high alert. And so in order to protect against the threat was considered not to be an air attack because we had radar and we could detect them. See it coming in. Yep. The threat was from espionage and from sabotage. So what they did is at Pearl, they took all the airplanes and they put them all close together, all within the same airfields to keep an eye on them to minimize the chance of sabotage. Well, what happens if you line up planes wingtip to wingtip down an entire runway on all your runways? Japanese just run over off. and strafe it. And they took out a t- it just the amount of materials, men that lost their lives and everything. It was insane for Pearl. Anyway, they missed the carriers. And they fucked up two other things. Didn't hit the fuel station. Yep. And... Probably the most important thing. Dry dock. Second most important thing in this was they didn't hit the intelligence branch. They didn't hit the intelligence, and they didn't hit the dry dock. So basically, Pearl had all of its fuel, could start pulling ships into dry dock and start doing repairs right away. Um, They were actually, Japan, I think they were going to launch a second. They were getting ready to recover some planes and launch another strike against Pearl Harbor. But because they didn't have the carriers that they confirmed were hit the Japanese didn't know where the carriers were. So if one of the carriers just happened upon the Japanese fleet, Mm -hmm. taking out a couple of them by chance and everything, their losses wouldn't have come out to what they were. But basically they decimated the American Pacific fleet at that point with the exception of the carriers. Now keep in mind, 
your carriers are your biggest ships. They're your most protected ships. If you're in a battle, they're at the center. Everything else is spread out around them, protecting them. This is usually where your command structure is also like located. So these things were the most protected. And at this point now, with all the battleships being out of commission, American power in the Pacific was basically our four carriers. It was the Lexington, Enterprise, Hornet, and Yorktown. The Hornet? Yeah. I didn't hear about that one. That's a sweet name. So the Enterprise is also yeah, probably that one's like one of the most famous one, famous ones. So is that where Star Trek Enterprise comes from? I think it is actually. That's sweet. I think where Gene it's where Gene Roddenberry got that from. There's been Enterprises throughout history too. Some of like our wooden man of war ships was like an Enterprise, and then it that's one of those ones really? that made it. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And the car company that uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. OJ didn't do that, an advertisement for the the better rental car company. <laughs> So one of the things, do you, um, the Doolittle Raid, I see you have that. Okay, good. You're going to have to interrupt me too, because I'm just going to, I'm in the zone now. You're cooking and it's okay. great. Okay. All this is just awesome information. So American morale at this point, you know, we declare war on Japan shortly after. I think we declare war on Germany because then in response to us declaring war on Japan, Germany declares war on us. And so everyone's at war now. Just a different aside. Yep. I know that we weren't boots on the ground in the the theater over with Germany and all that. But were we still sending aid to like, absolutely 100%. It was called the Lend lease act. So when you were talking about the carriers in the Atlantic, that were the warships that were protecting, we were sending planes, we were sending tanks, we were sending, we were sending everything except people. And in fact, we had American pilots that were able to volunteer neutrally to go participate with the RAF to go over there and fight. That's didn't know so, that. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, yeah, we were definitely supplying them with a ton of stuff. So, at this point, though, American morale is like people were given the right, you know, you're going to kind of find this later in the story, but some countries were more honest with their citizens about how the war was going. So, I mean, this was in all the newspapers and everything. Everyone knew, for the most part, the extent of the damage. American morale was pretty low, and so the Navy um, came up with a plan. I think it was actually part of the – it might have been part of the Air Force, maybe Army Air Force, because I think Army Air Force was one. The Navy was its own thing at this point, Mm. too, that they were going to attack Tokyo. It was going to be a small – it was going to be basically not an attack, but what they considered a raid, and it was to boost American morale. And it needed to show that the Japanese homeland wasn't untouchable. Yeah, they got us. Now it's time to get a little blood yes. back. And so what they did was uh, Colonel James, uh, he might have been a colonel at the time, but uh, James, Jimmy Doolittle, he selected a group of pilots and they trained to take Mitchell B, don't hate me on misquoting this, but I want to say B, B-17s or B-25s. It's a double, double engine plane. It's a bomber. It's supposed to take off on a runway. They modified these things and trained their pilots. They stripped everything out of these planes, lightened them as lightened them as much as possible. Took out tail gunners, tail guns, all the other guns except the forward-facing guns. It was one of the bombers that would have a guy in the front manning yeah. machine gun, two pilots, a guy in the back running the bombs, and maybe another guy running the tail gunner. So take out as much weight, armor, everything still be able to carry bombs and additional fuel. And the plan was to get a carrier close to close enough to the Japanese Island to launch bomb Tokyo 
and a couple other targets, but most of it was Tokyo, and then continue flying on and land in Chinese-controlled China, because there was a ton of it that was controlled by Japan at this point, too. They, that was kind of their first push in the war, was we'll, to go after China, Yeah, we'll it? talk. We'll do an entire topic on this, but the war between Japan and China... Ugly. Dude, the fucking atrocities. Yeah. It, it was... So anyway, this raid goes off. Um, what ends up happening with the raid, just a quick overview, is a Japanese boat picks them up, sees them further out than they would have liked to have launched. They're launching off of, I want to say, the I want to say it was the Hornet that they're launching off of. So they have to launch early. So basically they're trying to pass out cans of gas and loading up more cans of gas in these planes. Because they didn't Because they're another, they're a they few wanted. hundred miles further. So now they're trying to figure out, do we have enough fuel even to get to uh, China? Or are we going to have to ditch in the you know South China Sea or whatever? They end up taking off. All the planes, I think, but one actually end up making it because one of them had engine failure. As soon as they're off, the fucking aircraft, there was two carriers there. They launched off of one. The battle group turned around and hauled ass back for Pearl Harbor. They didn't want to be caught out in the open and everything. Planes are off. They end up bombing Tokyo. The damage was minimal. I mean, in, in the scope of things. But what it was is it let Tokyo know that their island wasn't safe, that they weren't safe, that the carriers were still a threat. So what this did and why this ties into Midway is it determines how Japan looked at this battle and what they needed to do. Yeah, not always, you're not, casualty count damage isn't always uh, the main thing. It was a psychological thing. Because like Japan, the difference is, is Japan's media and that kind of stuff was all controlled by the state the emperor and everything. So the only information that came out to the public, the populace was what filtered through the government. It mm-hmm. wasn't like America where you had reporters reporting to independent news that still came out. I mean, that existed the New York times, all those, mm-hmm. all those companies. So they had independent reporters radioing back, you know, from Hawaii that knew the damage about this stuff. You know, we're getting old recording clips that are making it onto mm-hmm. the nightly news. And- exactly. So I'm trying to figure out where I was going with this. Oh, so what they did was they downplayed to the public what the raid was, but the public saw it happen. Yeah. It wasn't a battle in which they lost carriers. No, they saw this happen. And so word spread that we're not, you know, that was Japan's big thing. We're keeping you safe. You're safe here. Well, you're not safe now, technically. So the key players in this, and this guy is, this guy's kind of like, you know, I think this guy's like the Eisenhower of our military. That, that guy that everyone knows. Yamamoto? Yamamoto. Okay. So Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto. So this guy was like the admiral. He controlled basically the entire Navy. Of course, you had to report to the emperor, and then also the emperor maybe had his own council and everything. But this guy had so much pull that at certain points, he threatened to resign if he didn't get his way, and they turned around and gave him his way. <laughs> Because they needed to keep him in in this position. So he is the admiral in charge of everything. In this specific battle, Vice Admiral Nagumo, he's in charge of the carrier force for Midway. The Kyoto Butai? Uh, They didn't call it the Kyoto Butai on this one for the technicality that... It only had four of the carriers. And I'll go back and and touch on that. With the coral. 
Um, you then had Vice Admiral Kondo, and he led the invasion force. So I'm going to talk about the order of battle and kind of the setup here in just a second. So basically, what Yamamoto, his sole goal for Midway, is he knew that he had to force a decisive battle with the United States carriers, take them out to establish full power in the Pacific. That was what this entire thing was about. Midway was insignificant. What it is, is it's a tiny 2.7 square mile island. No resources on it because it's so small. But basically what it is, is it's a place that because it's so close to Pearl Harbor, it's and it's ours. We we had to protect it because it would have given them technically almost a staging ground to hit Pearl. And yeah, we still had way. yes, and we had started to build up our you know we still had fully functional base on Pearl that we needed that. So he needed to draw out the American carriers, but he couldn't make it seem like he had to do it in a sneak attack to make sure he didn't lose any of his at the same time. So I thought about this a lot last night. At this point, once we, because we were already kind of in war production mode trying to support Europe, as soon as they bombed Pearl, everything got switched to war production. And if there's one thing that America does the best, as bad as this is, hands down, yes, it's making war shit. So as soon as this happened, construction on more aircraft carriers started, and we were cranking them out. Faster than anyone else. And when I say cranking these things out, these are huge ships, and they were getting cranked out multiple, multiple ships per year. I think at the end of World War II, we had like 21 carriers. We have four at this point, Pearl Harbor. That's what I'm saying. The American war machine is, is insane. Scare, scary. It's scary how good it is. Well, and I mean, it was all those women that were volunteering. Hell Rosie yeah. The Riveter what was types. the chick that had the flat? Uh, Rosie. Yeah, Rosie the Riveter. Hell yeah. God, she's hot. Yeah, yeah, she's hot. So didn't want to tangle with her and wrestle with her or anything no. like that, but so America had prior to after Pearl Harbor and before and after the Doolittle Raid, but before Midway, which takes place in between June fourth and June seventh of forty two. So not long after, I mean this is what, six months, maybe seven months after Pearl. Between that time, we had sent carriers, um, two carriers. It was the Yorktown. And I'm trying to remember what the other one was. Um, hang on a second. From Coral? Yeah. Lexington. Lexington. Yep. Down to um, support down in like the Philippines. New Guinea. New Guinea. Thank you. You're going to be doing this a lot. So I'm glad you, you got that on lockdown. New Guinea and uh, the Battle of the Coral Sea happened. And this was the first time that American carrier-based aircraft and Japanese-based aircraft had fought. And I want to say it may have been the first naval battle in history in which the enemy forces never laid eyes on each other. Correct. Right? Yeah, yeah, they said that it was the first time ever that they could fight at such a distance where there wasn't ever any ship-to-ship. Ship-to-ship combat. And so that lets you know right there that kind of the age of the battleship is over. So what ends up happening, Battle of Coral Sea, is the Yorktown takes damage to the point where the Japanese think she's been sunk or is ir- irreparable, and then the Lexington actually gets sunk. Mm-hmm. So we've got four carriers, and one of them gets sunk, and one of them they believe is sunk and is horribly damaged. But very big positive, because when they took the... Uh, when they thought the Yorktown went down, mm-hmm. we got it back to ship, or we got it back to port. Correct. And so 
and I'll, I'll touch on that here in just a second. The other thing is it gave also the first experience of ship-to-ship combat. So you had some air crews that then had that experience of how that goes. Mm. And then also, yeah. think about on, that. for the American benefit, what they actually did is they damaged, they sunk one of the Japanese carriers, but they damaged another one. The one they damaged was one of the newest ones. It was like the most advanced one. And so what we were talking about earlier, what happened is that one had to go back to, I don't know if it was the Japanese home islands, because... One of the things they did that was amazing is Japan established all of these bases across the Pacific yeah. on these islands that they didn't have to bring ships all the way back. They had dry docks and everything like they that. Had they ports. had these, yeah, these huge, like one of them was called like Truck. You guys can look it up. It's T-R-U-K. It's a almost um, looks like a giant chain of islands, but in the form of like a crescent, even maybe more so. Mm-hmm. It was a natural harbor. Oh, so they didn't have to build from, anything. Defensible from tons of positions. They had this thing. Sorry, I'm going to cough here. Just give me a sec. <coughs> Sorry about that. So, yeah, natural defenses, and then they just put aircraft, any aircraft guns all around it, and it was protected. But anyway, so, so they had to be sent back for repair. Like so we talked. Go through ahead. the Coral Sea, we lost Lexington. So U.S. was down one. Yorktown was damaged, so technically we were down it was, one and a half. It was but equal during the battle. Japan, Dam- yeah. Each damaged, and then... We we lost... Or the Japanese lost the Shikaku, um, and Zukeki, I think was the Zukaku. other one. Zukeku. Shikaku and Zukaku. Yeah, it was like, yeah. That had to go back, and... Now, she, now here's the thing that we were talking about earlier. She still had a, car- a carrier group, uh, like an air group. Yeah. But that couldn't be transferred, so you had... And there was one carrier that in itself at another point was down half strength, but the carrier was functional. Mm-hmm. They couldn't take that from the damaged one and move it over because they could have had a fifth carrier. But, but their engineering but and their, how they created their Their naval doctrine didn't allow that to happen. So they had to go in with four, which is still, you know, they thought at this point the Americans only had two. Mm-hmm. So the Yorktown gets pulled back. So... The Battle of the Coral Sea, that was a month before Midway. So they got Yorktown back to Pearl. They got the Yorktown back to Pearl on like June 1st. And I'll come back to that in just a second. So I'm up to on the date. So one of the things that you kind of touched on earlier was the um, code breaking station. Station, it was called Station Hypo. And the guy that ran this was, his name was um, Commander Joseph Rochefort. And this guy, he, um, kind of an eccentric guy, he would uh, sometimes work in like his slippers and his bathrobe, overneath, over on top of his khaki, you know, military uniform. Okay, yeah, that's, like, that's eccentric. These guys were basically in a basement somewhere. And they had broken a huge chunk of the Japanese Imperial Navy's code. And they called it, uh, the, in, in, what was it? The, uh, the IGN code was, I can't remember. It's something 25 IG 25 or something like that, but they'd broken it a huge portion of it. Not it, not completely enough to read a lot of the stuff. And this guy's team, if, if kind of the information is to be believed, but he would assemble this team of people that weren't necessarily, code breakers but he had people that were musicians and artists and stuff people that can recognize patterns different brains 
and and it was very effective. So after um, after Pearl, Chester Nimitz gets brought in to uh, lead the Pacific Fleet, and he knows um, this. I'm trying to think of the guy's name. Shit. Oh, how can I not? He John knows Nash. It. No, beautiful he... mind. <laughs> Oh, I don't know how this guy is one of my favorite guys. I don't know how I'm not remembering his name, but he was the guy that trusted Rochefort. So it was, let's see, Midway. I'm sorry, guys. I'm having to Google something real quick so I know what this guy's name is. Battle of Midway. This is one of the things that I always really appreciate whenever we look into something like this is it reinforces to me so much of we always celebrate the the brute force, the boots on the ground that are fighting. But these people that are in these bunkers, basements, like you're talking about the intelligence branches, they play such a crucial and vital role because without having them, we don't know where to go. We don't know. I mean, without the invention of radar, radar is great if you have Mm -hmm. it, but unless you had the people there that know how to set it up, know how to make sure that it's all functional, accurate. The the people that come up with the idea of, Hey, we're going to bounce. We're going to throw sound waves way out there and it's going to bounce off something and come back. And then we're going to calculate the time it came back. And that's going to tell us where and when they are and how far out there, like someone's mind to work that way. And then to apply to know, be like, go for it. That sounds useful. And that guy's never going to pick up a gun, but he's just as important to the war. If if not not more more important, if not more, it's like you have people that their skills are in creating the tactical layout of stuff and they're just brilliant at it. So his name is commander, uh, Lieutenant Commander Edward Layton. So Layton's the guy, he's an intelligence officer. So he works directly with Rochefort and the code breaking. So Nimitz actually has heard of him. This Layton guy had actually spent time pre-war with the Japanese Navy and the Japanese Admiralty. Um, it was part of like an exchange program because right up until they bombed us Pearl Harbor, they were trying to talk to us about treaties and truces. Mm-hmm. And the whole reason that they also bombed us at Pearl Harbor was because we had cut off supplies to them because they had started invading China and all these other areas. So they knew that the writing was on the wall. They had to go and get their own materials. So after like talks broke down, of course, you know, this wasn't super close to Pearl, but they pulled all of their military attaches out of each other's countries and everything. So there was kind of a one for one because there was that guy that was with the Japanese Navy over there mm-hmm. that came to America. And then wasn't the guy under Yamamoto, didn't he train in America yes. too? He went to like Harvard or something. So, but he had been through part of the Naval mm-hmm. Academy here. So yes. he had a little bit of insider mm-hmm. knowledge as to how we do things too. Mm-hmm. So there was a familiarity a little bit. Yeah kind of with our it was i'm sure a lot you know i'm sure it was supposed to be in in good faith you know Mm -hmm. it's it's like an olive branch and everything but most of it was like you're there to learn about them yeah so if we because because yeah because the war is going to happen so nimitz goes to this guy and to layton and layton's like listen we got this station they're breaking these codes nimitz is like we need to hit these guys we need to do something like I need, I need you to give me some information that gives us an advantage because right now we're down ships. It's not looking good. So basically what they end up determining is that Rochefort and his team have been able to decipher enough of this plan on the Japanese side called the Japanese called it operation and they never addressed it like this in their codes, but they called it Operation MI, which is easy to determine as Midway Island. 
So basically, their plan, bring out the American carriers, <clears throat> and it was supposed to be, it wasn't supposed to like look to the Americans like they're trying to draw our carriers out. Basically, it was to look like, hey, they're trying to snag Midway, so they have a launching point to Pearl. Mm, so what it. the battle plan was on the Japanese side is you had Nagumo leading the four-carrier group. Now, this isn't just like four carriers out in the middle of the ocean. Um, a carrier group consists of the carriers, and then each carrier has ships assigned to it. Those ships are usually either battleships or heavy cruisers, light cruisers, and then destroyers, and maybe even a couple submarines. And basically, everyone's job within that battle group is to protect the aircraft carrier. So they set up what they call picket screens. So basically, you'll have your aircraft carrier, then a ways out from your aircraft carrier, you'll have your heavier heavier ships, and those usually have the most weaponry on it, any aircraft guns, things like that. Mm-hmm. Out further than that, you have your destroyers, which are lighter on weapons, but they're also just trying to keep an eye out to either shoot down enemies or radio the interior circle that they're coming. Submarines, so, anything that they can Exactly. I mean, they're, the, the whole report is to report back to the carrier and protect them. So they have four groups of this. So that's under the command of Nagumo. His, if you're looking at Midway, and I'm going to refer to things like if you're looking at a clock, Midway's in the center of the clock. Nagumo's forces kind of coming in from like the 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock position from that direction, and they're about 500 miles off Midway. Son of a bitch. I was thinking of it the exact opposite way before you just said that, but Japan coming over would yeah. be coming from the left side instead of the right yep. side. Huh. Okay. So you have Yamamoto is in charge of what they can what he called he was phase three. Nagumo was phase one, the attack with the planes. Phase two I know I'm skipping around, I'm sorry. Phase two, sorry, was Vice Admiral Kondo, his invasion force. So he had landing ships along with like some battleships and other stuff. After Nagumo's force bombed their plan, because they didn't know anything on the American side that it had been broken, their code mm-hmm. had been broken. Their plan was to launch the planes, bomb Midway, take out all the defenses. After that, what they would do is the invasion force would come up and the invasion force was stationed, think of like seven o'clock. Okay. Another about 500 miles away that direction. Coming up more from the south, though. Exactly. A different, different plane yep. that they're going to be on. Well, they're not. They're not. They're coming in just with boats to, to land. And they, they had 5,000 soldiers to land oh. on midway to take it, out, take it over. Yamamoto was at like the 9 o'clock position, even back a little further. What was going to happen was Pearl was going to get notified the midway was being bombed. They were going to have to scramble their carriers they're going to have to bring their carriers in. And during this time, they would have bombed uh, Midway. Yep. The invasion force would have came in and taken over Midway, which meant the airfield and everything, because there were three airfields on Midway that kind of crossed each other. It was It's cool looking. If you guys have a chance, real quick, pull up your phones, Google Midway Island. Two little islands separated. One of them is literally three airfields, and the other one just looks like it's some buildings. It's it's kind of crazy. It's just out in the middle of the ocean. Well, and them coming in from like the 7 o'clock, too, they put basically the barrier of Midway between them and Pearl Harbor. So anybody coming to Pearl Harbor. uh, Midway was more like, Pearl was almost like at a four o'clock position from Midway. But almost directly with the island between them, kind of? Kind of. I mean, it would be there. But I mean, like the position, they would still have the advantage of being able to see the American force coming because they would have scout planes. Yeah, but as far as Pearl Harbor coming directly in, they're coming in from their side. They're not circling the island to get to where they've invaded. Correct, yes. So they were going to land, and what would happen at that point is uh, 
Pearl would launch the carriers. Carriers would come out. And what would end up happening is at that point, Yamamoto was going to come in with the battleships and they would be able to have a carrier to carry carrier to carrier battle at the same time Yamamoto would be able to take the information from where the American fleet was from the pilots get his mm-hmm. battleships in position and take out the carriers if the planes didn't do it basically they were looking to just completely wipe out the whole force finish off what they tried to do at coral so his was phase 3 so one of the things that <clears throat> again this is going back to the Japanese naval doctrine when they went on some of these like missions, as soon as they launched these three groups, they were so far away from each other, they couldn't support each other. Even with planes flying 250 miles an hour, two hours is too far, especially considering that the battleships and everyone in Yamamoto's group didn't even have airplanes. They would have to try to steam, you know, get their ships, which would take hours upon mm-hmm. hours upon hours. <clears throat> so these three different navies that they had couldn't support one another. The other thing, too, is because this whole thing was secret, they couldn't, they had to maintain radio silence between all of the, I mean, the ships could probably communicate because they could probably see each other to a degree or pass messages. Sorry. You still couldn't put anything on the airwaves, though, because they would be picked up. And they had suspected, kind of suspected that the Americans were reading the radio traffic, but they really didn't have any idea. So while they're getting into position, what they don't realize is that prior to this, while they're planning Operation MI, is Rochefort is listening into all this radio traffic and knows that this operation, okay. huge operation, is being planned. They're picking up all these clues. We've been having foreplay around this for a little bit. Yes, I, I, I love hope this. we're getting the finish because this is. I love this part. This is is in this is as important as the battle itself. This right here is what gave the battle even a chance to succeed. This is like my whole outlook on this is I'm not against like American ingenuity or anything like that, but the sheer amount of things that had to go right <clears throat> yes. for the United States and the amount of luck and prep that we had to do, it it had to all come together perfectly. So this was like seventy five percent intelligent thought 25 percent flat out gamble though yeah like it was this was in order to get the information that they were going to get from this Mm -hmm. it was 100 percent a gamble to put it out the way they oh yeah so they're picking up all this radio traffic at station hypo about this um attack from the japanese at um af and they couldn't figure out what AF was. And so he's giving this information to um, Leighton. Leighton's giving it to Nimitz. Nimitz is trying to go ahead and tell the War Department back in Washington. Because this isn't just like, hey, this is them launching their remaining carriers. Yeah. Everything that they have left in the Pacific. Everything. This, they're committing everything for this. So he's like, Nimitz is basically like, I can't take this and convince them. you got to give me more info. I can't do this on a hunch. Now, Rochefort thought almost from the get-go, the AF was midway. He just had a feeling about mm-hmm. it. He's like, I got to make it definitive. So Leighton's like, do what you have to do, make this definitive. So they send a signal to midway, and this boggles my mind. They have a cable, a secured cable from Hawaii to midway. It's 1,100 miles. It's underground, or underwater. underwater. How? How do you have an 1,100-mile cable? <laughs> I might not. Does it go to a buoy and then the buoy sends the signal? Clo- I don't know. I think it's got to be lower because you don't want a ship clipping it as it's I know. coming by. So it's got to lay on the ocean floor. So it's way longer than 1,100 miles. That's nuts. So they send a Rochefort's team sends a command to Midway and they're like, hey, over open air, send a signal back to Pearl 
and say your guys' um, like water distillation, your freshwater yep. filter and everything like that is broken. Because there's no natural resources on this island. Exactly. They're surrounded by ocean. So tell us it, it broke. So they report this back over open air signals. And then all of a sudden they intercept a Japanese signal that says AF is running short on potable water. And that was their confirmation right there. The Japanese just confirmed that that's what Midway was. So he well, sends it to Leighton. Leighton tells Nimitz. Nimitz convinces the War Department or the Naval Department. And they it, have the... It wasn't even in code either. It was just tell us this in plain English mm-hmm. that you're running low. Do not make... Yeah. Don't make even, it as easy as possible for the Japanese to hear this and get giddy that this is happening. And let them... But at the same time thinking they're just broadcasting this completely open air, no coding, no nothing. Yeah. And they, you're and, not suspect of why this is coming no. through at all. And so what they were able to do, and I'm, and I'm jumping back now to leading up to the days before the, the attack or the American set sail. So the Yorktown gets into Pearl on June 1st. It needs to go back to Puget sound in Seattle and it needs to have at least, I want to say they said like a month. Three weeks at least. At very minimum, three weeks. Nimitz is like, nope, fuck that. I need this thing ready in 72 hours. They pull it into dry dock, and they just start going to work on this. Now, thankfully, the elevators were intact, so it could still launch planes. The whole flight deck was mostly intact or almost completely intact. So what they're basically doing is they've gone in, they're taking out damaged sections, cutting out entire support structures, re-welding them back in. They got this thing seaworthy and battle-ready in 72 hours. In fact, there were still teams on the ship welding and getting stuff together <laughs> as they set out. There was like a mechanic – they used to have mechanic ships that would just trail right next uh-huh. to it, hooked up to display power, and they were sitting there working on it That's even fantastic. as it set off. So they turned around, and I think they got it battle-ready. They said, yeah, it'll last for two to three weeks battle-ready, and then it needs its extensive repairs. But that's all you need. So – now, not only do the Americans have the element of surprise on the guys trying to surprise us, the Japanese think that our carrier strength is only two. Now we have three. What they also didn't realize that when we broke this code, we didn't just break the code and know where it was going to happen. They were able to calculate the day that it was going to happen. They were able to calculate the enemy strength and almost their entire battle plan to know a good general area. Again, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of miles of open ocean. But they had an idea of where these guys were going to be, where the Japanese fleet was going to be. So the Americans, uh, American forces, again, they set out, they split the three carriers up into what they call task force. uh, Task forces. So just to make it simple, I know one of them was like, Task Force 15 and one of them was like Task Force 17. I'm just going to say one and two just to make it easier for this. Task Force 1 was only one carrier, and that was the Yorktown by itself. That was commanded by Frank Fletcher. He had tactical command of the entire battle. Raymond Spruance was actually in commanding the Task Force 2, and that was the Enterprise and the Hornet. And actually... When they came in, when the Enterprise came in, it wasn't damaged or anything like that, but its commander was William Bull Halsey. Bull was his nickname. Nice. He actually got some type of like skin rash or something like horrible skin rash and um, like debilitating. And so they had to pull him off of the Enterprise. And that's how Raymond Spruance actually got in there. 
he got replaced. Like so right the guy that was going to be running the whole operation. No, no, no. Up. Fletcher was always going to oh, be the okay. one running it, but the two other carriers. Bull was sp- Enterprise. Yeah, but I mean, if something would have happened, uh, Fletcher, it goes to the next guy. Yeah, but I mean, Spruance was he was he was a known commodity, and, and Nimitz Nimitz got to kind of pick his own command structure when he came in, so they were his guys. Anything up to this point? I'm going to keep going. No, it's this is we're like right on the tipping point. We we played just the tip the whole time. Now it's wartime. Okay, I gotta go on. What page am I on now? Let me see. Let's see. Okay, so the American task groups where they set up is um, oh also because they wanted to try to be on par aircraft strength wise. They sent a whole bunch of planes to Midway. Because Midway was basically like a unsinkable aircraft. It carrier was a fourth for carrier. Yeah, was, but I mean, you I, could even if they're if the carrier base planes got into trouble and had to come back because the uh, U.S. Navy we positioned our fleets and task groups almost at the one o'clock and then like the two o'clock position from Midway, and so they were kind of north of Midway just a little bit yeah. in line, kind of in the same line of where the carrier group for the Japanese were. Because that's what the whole goal was: was if we could take out the Japanese carriers we can get our strength back in the Pacific. Well, and going back to what you were talking about with the three um, launch points off of Midway, the three runways that they you had going different directions. Those were there, basically. The reason that there were three launch points there is because when you, it's kind of like an airport when they have you approach from a different yeah. direction. It's so they could launch planes if the winds were different. Well, but with the three facing different directions, mm-hmm. you're going to be able to fire off in one of and those And they're directions. harder to damage. You're, if someone's trying to bomb a runway, you got two other ones that are yep. trying to get planes and everything. And you're yeah. not going to be able to, or you're not going to have to worry about launching just off of one. You have two other options. Oh, yeah, you can get more planes in the air, definitely. So the kind of the board set at this point, the pieces are there. We're going to get into the timeline for the battle when this finally does go down. One thing, too, just to kind of, I'm going to go over American advantages before this starts. I know I've kind of touched on that, but also kind of the Japanese disadvantages. So one of them I already talked about was the air groups being required to train together. Um, the Japanese for this battle had 248 aircraft. That's a lot of planes. Mm-hmm. And again, between lot. those is fighters, dive bombers, and torpedo bombers. Um, before, before we get into that, I maybe not everybody's as dumb as I am. But I had no idea what in the world a torpedo bomber was Mm -hmm. because I just always figured torpedoes were underwater. But a Mm -hmm. torpedo bomber is actually a plane that will swoop down, drop a torpedo from its hold into the water, Mm -hmm. and that torpedo will then hit the side of a ship or whatever Mm -hmm. it's aiming for. Yeah. I I just assumed that it was like dropping torpedoes before we realized we could put them in the water. No. And one of the things that they kind of start finding out, so if you're thinking about trying to sink a ship, and you're just someone like at the war department trying to figure out new ways to do battle against ships because, you know, we need to sink these things. The first thing you're going to think about is what sinks a ship? What's the best way to sink a ship? And at that point, it was, it seemed like it was torpedoes. That's how sub sinks ships and everything like that. You hit so below the, thought, the water line, it's going to fill. Exactly. So there was this big emphasis, and I, I firmly believe based on this and everything else I've read, Torpedo bombing was not the way to go about this. And the reason was, first of all, you had to be able to... Okay, first of all, American torpedoes up to this point for America were horrible. Really? There was something about these types of torpedoes that they made that the Pacific was using. I don't know about the Atlantic, but there were so many situations when American subs and planes got hits and all that would happen is the torpedo would hit, break apart, and fall in the water and sink. 
just duds. And I mean, it, they missed numerous opportunities to go ahead and destroy ships because of this. Well, and even in this battle, it seems like there were some missed opportunities. Yeah. And the other thing too, is you got to be able to, here's the huge, my huge drawback for torpedo bombers is you couldn't dive down and pull up right along the water and then drop your torpedo. You had to go low to the water and slow down because if you dropped your torpedo too fast, the torpedo might break up and break apart. Uh, so you basically had to approach these carriers, which were in the middle of these circles of death firing at you. You had to stay low, like maybe like 20 feet off the water, maybe 30. You're right in the sight line of every ship firing at you. Anti-aircraft guns on these were And you're having to go so slow that the combat air patrol, so the fighters, their job was to sometimes escort bombers. One of the fighters' primary roles for these carriers was they would launch squadrons of fighters that were called CAP, Combat Air Patrol. Mm -hmm. All they would do was circle the carrier groups, and when they saw bombers come in, Bombers are a lot slower because they're having to carry bombs and they're heavier planes. Wait, yeah. So when you have these torpedo bombers trying to go down low and approach these, you know, it's line of sight. You're firing a torpedo at line of sight. You have to either get close enough to where the ship can't move and close enough to where the torpedo is not going to run out of steam to get there. And you're having to do it slow. These things got torn apart. The American torpedo bombers got decimated during this battle. Well, and you know, if you have to be in... Or if the ship has to be in your line of sight, mm-hmm. that means that you are in their line of sight. Not just their line of sight, too. You're in everybody else's line of sight as you're trying to fly through these pickets of ships firing at you. Yeah, it's uh, undoubtedly the most dangerous oh, uh, way yeah. to do it. And you have two guys per plane, too. So you're losing pilots and, and planes in this. So they had 248 aircraft. Luckily, um, the Japanese did something very good with their paint jobs that helped us figure out how to uh, drop these things. Yes. Yes, they did. <laughs> they wouldn't have thought about that to begin with, but no. they ended up doing us a favor. Um, kind of another one of the Japanese disadvantages going in here is because their carriers and carrier groups were this entire time in constant operation, because not only were you know they fighting like toward Hawaii in the Pacific like that, all these carriers were going down and helping uh, uh, against Australia, Philippines, New Guinea, all of those islands. And they, everything. they had their, wasn't it a, a secret alliance with Italy up to that point, and then a, a strong alliance with Germany? All three of them were in the Axis, so they were all, on I think, on equal footing. I so, mean, you didn't see, like, because of the distance, you didn't see, like, Japanese soldiers fighting in Europe. And no, you didn't see German or Italian soldiers fighting in the Pacific. But they would help contain... Yes, they, they were strategically trying to say, like, this is yours if we take this, then maybe that'll help you take this. I mean, there was mutual cooperation there, definitely. Um, But because these carriers and flight groups were in constant operation, equipment wears down. Replacements, you know, you're still working on getting your infrastructure for supplies. Replacements were a little more scarce and everything, harder to acquire. Um, And then the Japanese carrier force had what was called, I said this before, a glass jaw, they called it. And so it was super strong on the attack, but its defense was weak. And up to this point, you know, the Americans had already sunk one of their aircraft. They knew that they could do it. They'd already damaged another one. Um, And by Glassjaw, this is kind of what led into their strength or weaknesses on the defensive. So they had too few combat air patrol aircraft, too few fighters patrolling around the area. Um, 
the screening ships that were way out spaced apart, mm-hmm. they didn't have uh, like a screen set up. There were too many holes in the net. The the ships didn't have adequate anti-aircraft guns to set a proper screen. The carriers themselves, um, although they were super advanced, their fire control systems were really bad. Dog shit. Horrible. And Which leads into what you were talking about, the glass jaw, because they're great offensive machines, but as soon as they take fire, they're not prepared. Boil it down to what those things actually are, a battleship or a carrier. A carrier is basically a mobile airfield. And what do you have in an airfield? If you have to cram it all in one area, you have to have fuel for the ship, fuel for the aircrafts, which aircraft fuel is also higher octane than regular fuel. And you have everything that these ships have to carry to bomb with. So all of their armaments. So basically these carriers themselves, they're not heavily armored and they're basically floating gas in magazine storages. Another thing that I was kind of surprised by too um, is they had different munitions for different targets. Mm-hmm. Like they, they had different bombs if they were going after yep. land as opposed to different bombs if they were mm-hmm. going after ships, which I guess sort of makes sense because it's a different material. But you'd think if you had a bomb that could blow up a ship, it could probably do some decent damage to land too. But they would have to take time in between on these raids, whether they were going after ships or whether they're going after land. I'm wondering too if the land-based, because I think what happens is when you had the land-based bombs too. So the point of the ship bombs is they were armor piercing for use against battleships. So they would have to go down below decks, um, break through the steel break through and get down low to detonate. So they were armor piercing. The ones that hit like land were probably like cheaper, just like regular burst bombs. They would hit the ground. As soon as they hit the ground, they were blown up. Just destruction on the surface. And that's going to come into play too, man. The having to switch between all that stuff. Trying to, trying to lay that in there, trying to tease the Mm -hmm. stupidity coming. Um, the Japanese had this big submarine screening force that they were actually going to send out to kind of like almost surround Midway so they would be able to detect when the American force came in. Well, because the American force came in early, the subs were late and they missed okay. the American force coming in. So they had no idea that the American force was there, that there was a American carrier group there. Also played another role mm-hmm. into this. Again, no radar. So they couldn't detect incoming planes. Um, Yamamoto actually received a report that carriers could be at Midway after they had set sail, but he chose to remain, uh, to maintain radio silence just for the surprise. Chose to maintain ignorance. Yep. The already said the fleets were too far apart to support each other. And then they also had this doctrine that it was kind of how Pearl Harbor happened. Part of the carrier doctrine for Japan was that they didn't launch, um, strikes piecemeal. So they wouldn't launch like five to ten planes. They would wait till they got their entire carrier force. All the planes landed, refueled, and would launch these huge waves like they did at Pearl Harbor Mm -hmm. just to try to overwhelm and decimate the enemy. But what that allowed, it took so much longer to have your planes up in the air. Whereas the Americans, as soon as they had their planes ready, they would launch five and six squads, five and six like plane squads. And I'll tell you kind of how that comes back in for for how this battle turns out. But that's going to be a huge disadvantage for the Japanese. So American advantages is they basically know about as much about the battle as they can. Um, They have the element of surprise. 100%. -hmm. Um, They loaded up Midway with additional uh, planes. They had the Yorktown, which Japanese thought was gone. And yeah, so at this point, kind of the, the battle is set. And on the morning of 
June 3rd, a um, PBY Catalina. So I don't have you ever, it's a float plane. Was it the third or the fourth? The third, the fourth is when the actual battle happens. Okay. The third um, uh, PBY Catalina, it's the float plane that America would use for like, and it had a huge range and everything like that. They would use it for a, like a search. Huh. Search. I didn't know about that. So it spots the Japanese fleet at 9.25 a.m. on June 3rd. Okay. So early in the day. Yeah. Um, it actually headed from Midway, like the 7 o'clock position. So it actually spots the invasion force. But these Catalinas are so high and they, you know, they don't get close because what's going to happen is if they thought it was the carrier invasion force, all the carrier would have to do is launch a couple fighters and it could chase down this Catalina and shoot it down. Yeah. It so they, the they get close enough to report. They say, we see some ships. We know they're not our ships in this area. We try to count the ships. We're not going to get close enough to tell you what they are. We're just going to report back. So at this point, I think the Americans think that this is the carrier group. So what they do is they launch nine bombers. The military launches or Midway launches nine bombers to go after this invasion force. And of course the bombers have to bomb from super fucking high and hitting a moving ship is not easy. So they, they score no hits on, on this invasion fleet. You have to stay above the security circle at that point. So Mm -hmm. you're not seen. So they're not, yeah, because they could only fire anti-aircraft guns up so high. And I'm sure those zeros could only go up so high. Yeah, and by the time, you know, the bombers could take off, it would take them too long to to get up and probably chase them anyway. But even after the invasion force gets bombed, they still don't open radio communications. So at this point, they know now that they've been spotted. They don't know who's been spotted. Still maintain radio silence. So the other two groups have no idea that the, the American the first group was are aware of what's going yeah. on. And I, nothing happens for the rest of that day. I think everyone was kind of getting into their positions. So early, early morning on June 4th, uh, 15 B-17s launch basically to search and attack enemy targets. So they kind of fly out from Midway to, to search there. And because Midway is their target and the Japanese know exactly where Midway is because it's on a ship and it doesn't move, they know exactly where it is. So right after those B-17s get launched, Nagumo launches 108 aircraft to go bomb Midway. 108. Yeah. And these are just loaded with, you know, the the bomb, you know, he sends fighters. Uh, he does send some torpedo bombers in case there's ships around Midway. Yeah. Um, and then just the regular dive bombers with the... The land bombs. The land bombs, yeah. That's what we'll just call them. Um, so they do that. The Americans... At this point, launch four right after this. They launch four groups of aircraft to attack the Japanese um, from Midway. So these aren't even the carrier fighters yet. These are just launching four groups from Midway again. Uh, At 6 a.m., that's when the Japanese air attack hits Midway. Um, American fighters, they're pretty ineffective. They were using a lot of like... The American planes didn't get up on par in dogfighting with the Japanese until like pretty late in the war. It was just our ability to make so many things and replace our losses is really what our, our key to victory was. And so the American planes go up. Um, they're kind of outdated. They're from early on in the war, if not pre-war a little bit, yeah. and they just kind of get decimated by the the fighters. Well, if you can put enough of them up in the air, though, if you can put enough targets up there, it's sad to say because we're humans 
flying them, but if you give them enough targets and there's enough out there, sometimes the mass amount is... Yeah, and at the same time, that. I mean, you're <clears throat> you're wasting their fuel in dogfights. You're trying to waste their ammunition. That's all stuff that they have to go back to the carrier to land and resupply on and everything like that. You're basically just role. trying to inflict as many losses as you can and keep them kind of busy. So that whole attack on Midway, they end up bombing mostly all of the infrastructure, like the power plant, the hangars... Um, Pretty much anything of, of value aside from the runway the Midway has, they bomb. And it's a 27-minute attack. So on the way back, a Japanese pilot breaks radio silence and tells Nagumo, you know, we're going to need another wave of attack on the on Midway to neutralize it before the invasion force can move in. Mm-hmm. So he basically, he kind of has a dilemma at this point. He didn't expect it to take two attacks to neutralize it. And he feels like he has to kind of start getting ready for the American response fleet. But like, he still has to try to neutralize the airfield. Well, they said that he had, it was the planes coming back and they could either get them refueled, reloaded, and sent back in a matter of like 15 or 20 minutes. It didn't take them long. Or it would take them an hour to refuel mm-hmm. and get ready for the ships. Was yeah, that right? Yeah, they would have to... Basically, what his dilemma was is because of the time it took to switch ordnance, because you're having to switch like bombs, move them onto carts, move the carts out of the way, stack the bombs, try to put them in a safe place, refuel, bring out the new bombs. Bring them like, from below deck. Yeah. It wasn't a quick process to rearm and refuel and everything. But what ended up happening is right as he's trying to make the decision, like, do I do another wave of attack or do I get ready for the ship battle that's eventually going to happen when the ship, he didn't know the ships were already there, when the ships end up making their way up. Part of the element of surprise was the U.S. parked their stuff closer to Midway than just mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And at that time, bombers that were launched from Midway arrive over the carrier group and start bombing. They don't score any hits or anything like that. But basically, he's like, okay, the only place these planes are going to be coming from is Midway. These bombers came from Mm -hmm. Midway. They're going to keep coming at us. I need to neutralize it. So he can't figure out how the American aircraft are also finding him so fast. He's like, they shouldn't know where we're at. I mean, we just launched. I don't know if they're following us back or whatnot because – you know, they literally followed some of his planes back in and some of his planes haven't even arrived back yet from Midway. So he ends up deciding, oh, and also the USS Nautilus, one of the subs we had in the area, ends up surfacing like back behind this battle group. This is fantastic. And so now he's like, oh shit, like now I got subs around me. So he's like, okay, we got to bomb the, we got to rearm and try to bomb the airfield. Well, when the Nautilus popped up and it fired the torpedo, it actually distracted them enough that they sent one of their carriers back after not a carrier the, it was a destroyer or a destroyer yep. back after the mm-hmm. uh submarine you got to chase this thing out. off yep and that's going to come into play huge mm-hmm. so he decides to launch another strike against midway well 13 minutes after he makes that decision a japanese scout plane that they launched finds 10 american ships that he finds task uh force one so i think that is that's yorktown i'm gonna fucking cough again hang on so we had <coughs> Midway launch their first attack, and now we've just spotted uh, the Strike Force One. So Midway was kind of Strike Force Zero. Mm-hmm. Now they've seen Strike Force One. We have more coming. Yes. So 
basically he's like, okay, fuck, I just got report. There's a, there's a carrier in the area now. He's like, stop arming the bombs, launch anything that's currently carrying a torpedo. Anything that's currently able to go ahead and ship to ship combat, launch that. And he, he also never gave them how many uh, boats there were too, right? He said a group of 10 ships, which was probably the, it was probably the Yorktown and then it's carrier force. So it's, you know, cruisers or whatever surrounding it. Cause they're in like one battle group. And so, the Japanese didn't count on Yorktown being back out there. So no, they, but they, they, they didn't get close enough to know it was Yorktown. Force. They would only know, like the only time that they would find out what ships there are is if someone could get close enough. Cause some of the ships, like the Japanese ships, they were pretty similar the way they looked, but size wise, and they would have different markings mm-hmm. or structure. They could tell from a distance what that might be, but for American aircraft carriers, you know, you've always seen like the big numbers on the side or on yeah. the flight deck. That's how the Japanese would keep track. So they didn't get close enough at this point to tell that was Yorktown. And they also, as soon as he saw that, I don't know if he turned back or not, but they didn't see Task Force Two, which would be the other two carriers. So they just thought it was one at this point. Yeah, they, they had no idea that we got the Yorktown back in. So the two carriers that he saw, he thought those were the only two carriers. Yeah. So at this point, too, Task Force 2, Enterprise, and Hornet, they launch 116 planes, combination of fighters. They have their combat air patrol as well, staying over the carriers, um, torpedo bombers, and dive bombers. And then the Yorktown's kind of getting ready to prepare hers to launch. So, you know, I was telling you about the pit crew thing. Mm -hmm. So the Japanese were able to launch 108 planes in seven minutes. 108 in seven minutes. It took the Enterprise and Yorktown an hour to launch her about the same amount. So that just tells you how the discrepancy between how quickly these yeah these operations are, are run. But one of them was much cleaner than the other one. Correct. As far as like safety precautions, yep. yes, 100%. And Japanese decided that as they were switching things out, they weren't stacking their bombs back to where they needed to be in their back safe Back in the armored holds. magazines and everything like that. Everything just got left on the flight decks when they were doing all this. So uh, all the explosive stuff is left in fuel, open air. Fuel hoses yep. all over the decks. Um, so Nagumo gets confirmation at this point. Again, Nagumo is the leader of the carrier force. So he gets confirmation at this point of at least one U.S. carrier in the area. Um, but he can't do anything until he has his bombers on their way back from Midway. So he can't do anything because he has to keep the flight decks clear to retrieve the bombers before he can then push out die bombers and fighters and stuff to go after so 820 is when he gets confirmation. He hasn't received his bombers back until 917. Which probably felt like forever. Oh, my God. Now, also, Yamamoto, again, he's like 500 miles back. Yeah. He's he in gets the, third, the same third wave. Yeah. And he's, he's allowing everything to play out and everything. He doesn't communicate with Nagumo or anything like that, but he gets the same report of the U.S. carrier. Mm-hmm. So he knows that shit... They already had some something here in the like right when our attack happened. They they knew about this, but he's like, our doctrine states to do this and this and this. I think they trusted that so much that, you know, I kind of wonder if their military style or their naval style was set up that they were like, this is rigid and practiced so much that the likelihood of failure is so small that we're not going to make any consideration to change or tweak ideas. There's no plan B. There's no plan B because plan A is so effective. But what happens is if someone finds, if your plan is then overlaid with the enemy plan that you didn't know about, I think that's where it crumbled. Yeah. Well, if 
if you only have plan A and somehow you accidentally told them what plan A was, mm-hmm. you're just going to have to keep leaning into plan A. And hope that your plan A is stronger than yep. their plan A, which in this situation, you know, comes to, comes to be it wasn't. But so he ends up... <clears throat> So Nagumo gets all his dive, his bombers back at 917, and he points his fleet, the, all four aircraft carriers. They start kind of moving toward the American. So they they move a little bit. So they start moving toward, like, the American, where they think the American fleet is. And American dive bombers from Hornet appear over the J- Japanese fleet, and all 15 of them are shot down. They just torn apart again. Yes, because it's, fif- it's not like, and this is the advantage and disadvantage, you launch a fleet like the Japanese do, you have so many planes that they overwhelm the combat air patrol and the inter- aircraft, and something slips yeah. by. All they need is one or two planes to slip by to sink a carrier. Yeah, you can point at 15 planes at once. Mm-hmm. If there's 20 planes, that's five other planes yep. that are going to be laying siege. And then all of a sudden you send in just 16 planes, and every fighter escort with that carrier group is like on those 16 planes. And for you to even get a chance, you get through them now what's your chance of getting through the inner aircraft fire? Mm-hmm. So all of those guys get shot down and I'm losing my place here. There we go. All fif- Oh, sorry. All 15 of those guys are shot down. Two more American groups. I can't remember the amount of the planes. They find the fleet and only six planes return. So I think if it was two groups and you figure maybe like 10, 10 or 15 a piece, still only six guys make it back from there. No hits. Um, 1020, the Japanese fleet, so two hours after he gets confirmation about the carrier, um, the Japanese fleet's refueled, rearmed with ship-to-ship stuff. At and this point, to too, Japanese plan A still stronger than America's new plan. Yeah, so, I mean, at this, at this point, the Japanese were like, nothing has even touched us. We've made it through, like, we've been at our most vulnerable right now without any planes launched, and they haven't gotten anything through. As much as those guys didn't do any, <clears throat> those three squadrons, the 15 that were all shot down, and then the other two groups where only six made it back, what they did, though, can't go unnoticed because once you get attack planes coming in, the ships have to start taking evasive maneuvers and moving and turning side to side to avoid bombs, torpedoes, things like that. Well, you can't launch or be on the d- flight deck trying to do stuff if your ship is rocking back and forth. So, once you're engaged, you're engaged. Mm-hmm. And that's why it also took him so long. You know, two hours from the time he gets confirmation, these ships are all getting shot down and aren't scoring hits, but they're keeping this fleet off balance and not being able to launch or retrieve planes and refuel and rearm. Yeah. So it's buying additional time. Well, just as all of these planes are on the flight deck ready to launch toward the American group, 26 dive bombers come over and surprise attack. Now, these 26 were the first group launched off of Enterprise at 7 o'clock that morning. So three and a half hours later almost, <clears throat> they find the group. Was that C. Wade? That was Wade McCluskey. So Wade McCluskey was the commander of this air group from um, the Enterprise. And they went on a bearing. If you're looking at it for like a, a clock, basically they went, you know, if they're coming straight across at 9 o'clock to go after the carrier fleet, they kind of went at like a 8 o'clock. I sort of right direction, just coordinate. They had a bad bearing or they might've had the bearing before the fleet turned toward the American fleet and started going. So they're running low on gas. And when they say they're running low on fuel, what I mean is their fuel, when they say we're running low on fuel, it means we've factored in how much fuel we need to make it back land on the carrier. Yep. So we're getting low to the point of 
we need either shit or get off the pot. Almost a half. Yep. And while they're looking around, they're seeing nothing but open water. And Wade McCluskey's like, let's turn a little bit. Let's keep doing a little bit of search. This is so awesome. And as fucking luck would have it, they spot one destroyer. And it's the destroyer that had to hang back from the fucking carrier group and try to get rid of the Nautilus and scare it off, which the Nautilus, they unsuccessfully. No, they still didn't hit the submarine. Nope, they tried they to depth, it, I think they tried to depth charge it and they unsuccessfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they catch this destroyer who, after scaring the sub off, is like, I got to get back to the action and fucking hauls ass toward the carrier fleet. All McCluskey's group does is they're like, let's follow this and see where it leads. They follow this guy right into the Japanese carrier fleet, catch them completely off guard. And because they're coming from a different direction, they're almost coming from like, at this point, south, almost kind of a little southwest. You're sneaking up on them. Coming from behind. Well, what happened is all these combat air patrol planes that got sent out to take on these groups, these three other groups that came in, they were all coming in kind of like from the east. So you had them going out to try to meet them all these planes were out of position when these 26 guys show up. Yeah. So between these 26 planes, McCluskey um, and his like two or three wingman or his air group, it was more than two or three guys. They end up going on Kaga and dropping nine bombs on Kaga. One of them hits a fuel truck right near the bridge and takes out the entire command staff and that the nine hits completely takes the Kaga out of commission. The thing's on fire from... That's one thing. These things catch on fire, and because of all the gas and the weapons and everything that's stored in the flight deck below the main mm-hmm. launch deck, all that stuff explodes. And everything that they didn't get off the launch deck also explodes, explodes even easier. And not to mention, the Japanese were so, I guess, proud of their heritage that they painted the rising sun on was it? It wasn't the flight deck where they had painted it. It was. It was the flight deck. I thought it was more towards the bridge, but... It- no, there was a couple of them, because I'll talk about Richard Best here in a second. So I think where they usually put it was like, if you were to divide the flight deck up into thirds, it would have been in the last third down the flight deck. But and they might have had one on both sides. Yeah. But basically, think of it this way. The whole point of with the dive bombers is these things are up high altitude, and when they come down to dive at the carriers... It's not vertical. It's damn near but vertical. But it's damn though. near vertical to the point where, you know, it, it, I don't know if this really happens, but like I've seen stuff like in movies and media. It's kind of cool to see these guys cruising along in these planes at high altitude with the fucking canopy slid back. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, dive bomb time, canopy goes forward and it's literally stick goes all the way forward. And these things would almost go altimeter just starts spinning yep and the whole point of the dive bombing was the fighters couldn't go with them yeah the fighters couldn't dive to chase them to take them on also if you're shooting up trying to shoot at something the chances of you passing the round on the way down or passing through it's Mm -hmm. so much harder to hit yeah because you're you're (laughs) shooting at a a straight on surface as opposed to a flat surface or trying to lead it or something like that there's no way to really lead it and so mccluskey's air group Nine of them, I think, dive on Kaga, terror up. Um, and then part of his other group, um, Dick Best and his two wingmen, they see they were all going to go at Kaga, the whole air group. There wasn't mm-hmm. really any, there wasn't good communication. They see McCluskey's group go after it, peel off, and they end up going after Akagi. And out of Best and his two wingmen, 
best hits it. And one hit, if you can get the right hit, will do all you need. Tons of damage. So he ends up hitting it and he drops his bomb through. He catches either the seam of the elevator or part of a weak part of the elevator, drops the bomb through the elevator into the hangar where it's just completely surrounded with armed and refueled aircraft waiting to launch. And it just creates an explosion, tears the ship apart. Um, the thing is, too, is like with all of their fuel hoses, the gas vapor just builds up. It mm-hmm. may not be on fire at that point, but all it takes is a sparker to travel. And their fire suppression systems just couldn't handle it. They got overwhelmed. They ended up, it was like a bucket brigade at the end where guys were getting mm-hmm. burned because they were trying to put it out that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just... The whole idea of them painting the rising sun so close, it was just almost like they were giving you a target to hit when you're coming in from the top. And so I think it was best that they were talking about. He was looking directly down. It might have been McCluskey. But one of them had said they were looking straight down with their binoculars, and they saw an explosion hit like 20 or 30 feet before mm-hmm. the rising sun that was painted on there. And he just decided that it was good enough. Like he literally almost hit the target that they had laid out on there, but it was just mass destruction where it hit. Oh, yeah. And so ends up also the Soryu. So the four carriers, I didn't go through the carrier name, sorry. The four carriers there for the Japanese are the Akagi, the Kaga, the Akagi. Hear you and the Soryu. So the Soryu also ends up taking about three dive bomb hits when fighter and bombers from the Yorktown actually arrive. This is in the quarter from the time that the Dauntlesses first come over at McCluskey's group. Mm-hmm. It's about five to ten minutes. It's just so fast. And what you said, it was about two hours that he was waiting for the. Um, planes to get back before he could launch again. Launch and then refuel and get them ready to launch again as the full strength yeah. wave. So how precious is that two hours when this is all happening in a matter of That's what of I'm saying. Minutes? Like the guys that came through and ended up getting shot down and everything like that, they got no hits. They were still setting them back every time they would come through and those ships had to go into evasive maneuvers. Yep. That was the time that it bought McCluskey's group to find it, the Yorktown's other group to come in. And the other thing too, is when McCluskey's group came in and Dick Best, you know, went off to go ahead and bomb the Kagi, all those fighters then had to abandon that section where the Yorktown's fighters or bombers were coming in, try to get McCluskey's group off. And it just, it was the, they said it was the combination of three different groups coming in from three different altitudes from three different directions. It was, it was the most perfect thing that could have happened during this battle. Yeah. If you think about it, kind of the way that I broke it down was it's almost like you have these beehives as these carriers Mm -hmm. and you have these rogue bees that are out trying to defend the hive from one side Mm -hmm. and then another faction of murder hornets or whatever is coming in from the other side. So then you have to switch it. But the bees that are all flying around as the planes have to keep trying to protect the different ships mm-hmm. and the different carriers and they or don't hives. Know where and, the other, and murder hornets keep showing up from other different directions yep. and everything. So at this point, three of the four Japanese carriers are completely on fire and inoperable. That's so awesome. The only one that's still left is the Hiryu. And because the Akagi was Nagumo's flagship and it was out of commission, another one of the ships in his carrier group comes up he transfers his command flag over to it and he um radios yamamoto about the situation so he has to call yamamoto and be like hey um no i haven't talked to you in a bit just a heads up 
three of our carriers are down. Status report. Yeah, exactly. So at this point, I want to say Yamamoto turns toward Nagumo's fleet and tries to haul ass toward Nagumo's fleet. Because at this point, he knows that there's a carrier group. And I think really his only saving grace at this point is he's like, I have to try to get there. I don't know if he expects to get there before the Hiryu gets hit. But his position is, I can't let this be a total bust. I need to try to at least take out the carrier that's taking out mine. If we can save the hero you, at least we save one. Yeah, that or I think on the other side of it, he's like, even if they take that out, if I can go take out the one or now, maybe they're aware that there's multiple because of all the planes. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're aware that there's multiple carriers. He's like, I got to at least take out some of this. Because the whole point of, you know, I think in his mind, he knew because he had also, I think Yamamoto had also studied in America for, for a brief period. He he knew the industrial capacity of the United States, and his whole point of trying to go ahead and take out the American carrier group was he knew that it wasn't going to, you know, be the end-all, be-all for American carriers. He knew that other ones, we were going to get more carriers in the area. What he was basically trying to do is say, if we can take theirs out and we still have our six or whatever, we can keep building ours, but at the same time, we have so much strength that we can reinforce all our positions that by the time American forces get back up to strength in the Pacific, we're already so fortified that they can't can't challenge us. They have to come <clears> to <throat> us with the treaty to try to keep. That's what exactly they have. what it was. And so the Hero U is the only carrier left and launches like eighteen dive bombers, six fighters, and they're met by American fighters coming on the way out. They end up taking out ten. Which seems pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, out of the 24 that are there, they take out 10. So 14, though, get through. They get through the Yorktown's screening force, and they end up hitting, I think, Yorktown once or twice. Dive bombers do. They were pretty big hits, though, weren't they? It was damaged, but they said it was still functional. Like, the Yorktown, it was... I'm trying to remember. I don't know if they... There was something about the Yorktown for Legend is just, like, it just wouldn't die. Yeah. Because what ended up happening is... Yorktown gets damaged. The exact same thing happens just a little while later where planes from the Hiryu come through. They're met with an American screening force. They take out a few and they come in and hit the Yorktown again. But what happened is the reason they hit the Yorktown again is the fucking, they weren't fire crews. They were the, um, like the Seabees, the engineer, the engineering corps that would help repair stuff and everything like that. They were so fucking good. They got the Yorktown all the fires out and got it back up to like speed, no list or anything like that, and made it look like it was a fully operational carrier again. So when the Japanese came over and didn't see it on fire or anything like that, they're like, fuck, it's another carrier. We got to hit it. Well, not to interrupt, but I think this was the one that they were talking about where they had such good technology that when they weren't um, filling planes, they could actually cut off the flow of fuel to the different parts of the ship where they would do the refueling. So if they... Oh, like the fire control systems yeah. for, like, the Americans? Yes. So if if they were to bomb an area where they would be, they like, They could pump, like, station. gas into other tanks, like, fuel even, to counterbalance yeah. the shift and everything. The American, like, the, the control systems for, like, fire support and fire, they were really good for the Americans. They just weren't as big as the Japanese ones. So if you could cut off the source of fuel for fires mm-hmm. and things like that, obviously you could And not even that, that was... Better. That was the whole thing that was standard procedure is like once you were done refueling, all of that stuff went back away. That's just what the Japanese at this point, they were in such a rush to launch 
they had they had to best of all fell kind of by the wayside yeah. of the rush. They were trying to launch before they got everything cleared, mm-hmm. and that just leaves tinder to any fire that's going to exactly. Be set. Yep. So the Yorktown ends up taking two torpedo hits, and at that point the ship starts listing, and. I was trying to put my, like, close my eyes and kind of imagine this. They said it started listing so much that the flight deck was almost touching the water. And all I'm thinking of is, like, you're out in the middle of the ocean. You're a dude, like, it takes a special breed of person, I think, to be a sailor or to be in the Navy. Just to be, like, I have this weird thing about open water. I don't like it. No. It, it scares me. But to be out there in the middle of the ocean and you're sitting on a ship where it's tilting so much that it's almost touching the water. And you're just like, so this thing's sinking? Like, what are, what are we doing here? <laughs> While you're still trying to do your job. Oh, yeah. And so the order is issued at that point to abandon ship. Now, abandon ship, kind of contrary maybe to some belief, doesn't mean that the ship is just, like, doomed and they're just leaving it. What they're basically doing is they're getting one everyone off the ship that they have to, like flight crews, one that can't assist it, and then they get mechanics and people in there to start pumping out water and sealing breaches. To try to save the ship. And yeah, that's to try exactly, to keep it buoyant. That's exactly what they do. They pull up a ship next to the Yorktown. I think they almost start immediately in trying to repair it after the torpedo hits and they get the crew to abandon ship. So because, though, the Yorktown was the flagship for Spruance, what he ended up doing is he transfers over to another ship in his and he actually passes on command to Fletcher. I think at that point, his determination to do that was he was no longer in charge of the air groups because now his fighters and planes from Yorktown, they were going to have to come back and land on Enterprise. Yeah, and they couldn't, couldn't land or so launch So he was like, you're going to take over because you're, you got a better seat for this. You mm-hmm. can command it a lot better. So at that point, Fletcher's like, fuck yeah, we're taking out the last carrier. And he basically rounds up and says, hey... Anybody want to, any of you dive bombers want to go out and take another crack at this? And so guys that had just come back, made it back through all that shit and everything like that, they get 26 dudes to go back out. I'm sure their adrenaline at that point. Oh, sorry. Not, no, no, no. Sorry. Not 26. 40 dudes. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's Eight, oh, sorry. More. My bad. 80 dudes, two per plane. <laughs> but still, that's 80 guys that are like, we're volunteering to go back out, and we just made it through hell. That's 80 raging boners that are all getting back on yep. planes. Because you saw what you just did. Could you imagine just the rush of adrenaline that you would have at that point? Especially any of the guys bomb? any of the guys that were like, had hit a previous yes. carrier, like, I get to try to hit another one? Yeah. Like, it, when has this ever happened? This has never happened in the history of the world. Your dopamine sensors are going crazy you're looking for that next hit because mm-hmm. you just saw the the kind of destruction you did mm-hmm. so the other kicker was this they told them they're like just so you guys know you're also going without fighters we're not sending fighters with you because we're keeping all our fighters here to protect the carriers so there's no cover no cover so they're like okay fire them up they launched these 40 cover or 40 dauntless dive bombers without fighters they find and attack the horror or hear you and Dick Bass scores another hit to put the carrier out. And this is the one I think they were saying that he hits, he describes. Um, and there's an awesome book. I can't remember what the name of it is. It's on my phone. It was an audio book I listened to. They talk, they also have information from the Japanese perspective and they talk <laughs> about the guys that were on the deck of the hear you. And he's like, we were trying to get planes landed, get them ready and everything. And all of a sudden you hear the engine wind up sound and one of the guys, he's like one of the lookouts screamed hell divers. Cause that's what they used to call the dauntlesses. They called them hell divers. 
And he's huh. like, we looked up and someone yelled hell divers. And he's like, we saw three. Oh, actually this, sorry, I might be misquoting. This is from when Dick Best hit the first one. Hit the Akagi. Hit the Akagi. And he's like, we shouted hell divers. And he's like, we knew there was nothing we could do. They were screaming down at us. And he's like, and then the most eerie thing happened is we saw these little black things float from underneath the belly of the airplane <laughs> and just floated gently in the air. And as the airplane pulled up, you saw just go through the flight deck and explode. But it, it's so crazy just to hear it from that perspective. But we're feeling in the world. Yep. You're Dick. listening to the best broadcast of them hitting and knowing it from your angle. And then you're listening to the absolute <laughs> like horrible nature of knowing that know. this bomb is just hitting you and there's nothing you can do. I know. So he's the only guy in history to ever score two hits on a carrier. During, I don't know if that's during, I would imagine probably during, no, I mean, I'm sure somebody else hit different carriers, but during one battle, he's yeah. the first guy to hit. And kind of a, a sad note on that for, for what he did during that mission, during Midway, he'd flown before, he'd been a successful pilot yeah. before, but he got a bad batch of um, oxygen because, you know, uh, they had their flight mask and they had oxygen. Yeah. But what happened is something about like the CO2 scrubbers or something like that. Or they were using, you know, it was back in World War II, so they're using dangerous chemicals to try to do something that they thought was useful. Mm -hmm. Something about, like, it ended up creating in his filtration system something called caustic fumes. And so he was breathing in almost toxic stuff. So he was, like, coughing up blood. Just burning. His lungs. And he still, and so he got medically retired, actually, after Midway. So that was his last, what a fucking way to go out. Well, and our other guy, McCluskey, the one that followed the destroyer, mm -hmm. when he got back, he said that they were taking fire and didn't Was know. he shot? He got shot through the shoulder. That's right. Said, he went He went head to head. I think he was going head to head with the Zero, shooting directly at each other, going straight. And he took one through the shoulder, yeah. And that's why, they, he, that's why he couldn't go out with the 40 group. When they landed the plane... They counted 55 bullet holes in his plane. That's what I'm saying, man, is the American planes, especially like the dive bombers, they were slow and everything, but that's what they were made to do. The Zeros were so fast because they were so light, but they were so fragile. Mm -hmm. But these things, I mean, they got reports of like guys coming back missing like half of a wing or like tail rudders and stuff like that. They said some of these things were just tanks and they would just absorb punishment and get people home safe. That's why, that's why a lot of these guys, even though they complained about like getting like, you know, being slow and everything like that, they're like, these things are just bullet sponges. Yeah. If you, if a plane can get shot 55 times and one of the crew mm -hmm. can be shot like that and still make it home and make it back alive. It sucks that you got hit 55 times, but you're still alive. You only, yeah, and in his situation, he got hit 55 times and only got hit one himself one shoulder. time. All right, man, I got to go pee, but I still okay. got some stuff on this. Yeah, me too. All right, back at it. All right, do you have, do you have anything before I close my eyes and zone back out? No, my I, I got one guy that... I kind of want to talk about... I, please, please do. Okay. So we were talking about how great Best was and just the fact that he had those two hits and just how awesome it was. What do you... Before you go into that, what do you think... I think we lose, especially people that have never, you know, served or been in combat or anything like that or... But, like, I'm trying to think how best to... I guess best to say this, but really... 
it probably also helps when you've been smoking to think about this, but <laughs> you're, you're in like a completely mechanical device that you're flying a plane, you know, uh-huh. like those planes at those times you're flying out just over complete open ocean and all you're flying by is sight. That's how you have to find the enemy. First of all is by sight. At that point, then your job is to get high as fuck, get over an aircraft carrier and then point your nose down and speed toward this thing as fast as your plane will go without breaking up. And then you have to get like, here's the thing. These are not like guided torpedoes or guided, you know, bombs or anything like they that. They are. They're human guided though. That's what I mean. It is literally just something that you drop and all it has on it is fins to stabilize it and make sure that the boom part gets pointed down. You have to get so close to these carriers and these things are not just sitting still in the water hoping for you, you know, waiting for you to go ahead and drop on top of it. These things are going side to side, taking evasive action as you speed toward this at hundreds of miles an hour. And you have to wait for the right second, pull a lever, pull the thing up to hit it, and then crank the shit out of the stick to try to level off. And then guess what? Your job's not done because guess where you're at? You're in the middle of this convoy where there's still fighters around there's still ships shooting at you and you have to try to, even after that point, get out of there. Well, one thing that I found just really interesting was, I think it was McCluskey that was talking about it. It may have been somebody else, but they said during um, peacetime training, they would be able to drop on these dives. And I think they said that their drop point was 1,500 feet going straight down. They mm-hmm. would drop 1,500 feet above where they were. Mm-hmm. But in wartime, they were going down to 1,000 feet. Now, mm-hmm. granted, going that fast, 500 feet doesn't seem like a whole lot. It's nothing. But when it's a third of the distance that you're supposed to be dropping at, mm-hmm. you have 500 less feet to be able to then pull the yoke and pull it all the way back Here, to pull out of that Here's the thing, too. Dive. If they're dropping at 1,000, that requires you to be positioned in that situation at 1,000 feet. Yeah, you're not already no, pulling up and then launching at the no. same time. And then think of how tall also you're subtracting the amount if you're flying from the back of the carrier. The, their preferred method, what I assume, would go from the back of the carrier to the front because then they have more of a width to hit. Mm, you have more room to play with. Yeah, exactly. So take into account the height of the carrier too if you're trying to pull <laughs> up over the carrier or something like that. It's just the the Gs too that they're... This helped to... me explain Gs. Now I mm-hmm. understand what it means when somebody says Gs. Gs yeah. is just the... Another, or it's, uh, one G is like the double amount of body weight that yeah. you have at that time. Mm-hmm. So if you're pulling three G's, you have to be able to pull back on that yoke hard enough. And, to be and able... hope to God that all of the mechanical shit in there yeah. is going to take <laughs> yeah. the stress of the wind trying to, and the force trying to pull your fucking plane up. And if you got shot 50 times before that, mm-hmm. you have to count on each one of those bullet holes, not hitting something crucial. A cable or something like up. that. Yep. Or your fuel, fuel tank and hoping you have enough fuel to get <sighs> home and you're not ditching in the water. It's just such a wild... We talked about like the uh, the kamikaze pilots. This was basically kamikaze minus the not living to see the end of it. This was kamikaze up until a thousand feet, and then you had to pull back as dude. Hard I as had you the could. exact same thought when I was trying to figure this out. I was like, "That's exactly that's the only difference." These dive bombers were the kamikazes just went a thousand feet 
too much. Yeah. <laughs> that was their goal. These guys were basically doing the exact same thing at Kamikaze. They were just pulling up and living to tell about it. So Praying who, to whatever you believed in. So who was the guy you were talking about? So this guy, I, out of all the seats, they did the Midway movie and all that. And you could sit in the theater, I'm sure, in IMAX and watch it. And mm-hmm. It was probably the best seat in the house. This man had the best seat in maybe all of history. So this guy named George H. Gay Jr. was a pilot in the first attack, one of the failures. Um, He was shot down, and he abandoned plane and landed in the Pacific and sat there and floated in the middle of the battlefield and watched overhead as all these planes came in to attack the Japanese fleet. He sat in the water and survived watching all these bombings happen all the Japanese carriers getting hit and then live to tell about it. What do you fuck? I'm trying to like, I want to throw myself into that mindset so bad and even try to feel what that's like. You have to be fucking terrified. Oh yeah. Just sitting in the middle of not only the middle of the fucking ocean, treading water. He, I think they probably had a life jacket. Yeah. Maybe. But like, but you're floating there in the middle of the enemy fleet. But like when you see your guys, you have to feel terrified because you just got shot down and you're probably like, this is hopeless. But then all of a sudden within the course of like a few minutes, everything around you is just exploding and it's the good stuff that's exploding. Like the, can like, what are you scared? But all of a sudden you just have the, like you're the happiest you've ever been. I would assume you probably realize at some point that you're out of the anti-aircraft fire because Mm -hmm. you are below the, you're at the water line. You're not a threat. But everybody else that's firing from above coming down, you're still just a sitting duck sitting there mm-hmm. because you have all the dogfights that are going on in the yeah. air. So you could catch an <clears throat> air bullet at any mm-hmm. time. At the same time, you get to see exactly like the Japanese guy was talking about on the plane, seeing that, what do you call them, the death? Hell, hell divers. Hell divers. You're seeing it happen, but you're seeing it happen from a vantage point to where you're seeing it happen over the ships and not over you. Can you and those imagine? are all your boys that are dropping. I know. Those just imagine you're sitting there and you're facing a, one carrier. And again, they're they're pretty. These carriers are pretty spaced out. Yeah. But I think at this point too, they were probably you could probably catch sight on the horizon. You so have imagine a full field of vision. Yeah. So imagine you're focused on something going on one, and you see flames and explosions happen. And you're just cheering, and then all of a sudden you hear a sound behind you. You turn around, and there's another explosion going on. And then you turn around in another direction, and there's a third one, and you're just like, thank God somebody hit him. Yeah. You're just so excited seeing all this happen around you while still knowing that there's a minute chance, but there's still a good mm-hmm. chance that you're going to catch an errant bullet or something mm-hmm. that's going to end your day. Well, what ends up what ends up happening? And he ends up living? He lived through it. I'm pretty sure he lived through it. I'm 70%. I would love to. Does he have a book? Um, Even if he just wrote like a little short story about just what that was like sitting in the water. I I mean, it doesn't have his death. So maybe, oh yeah, no, he died. Yeah. He died in 1994. So he lived Mm. through it. So he, yeah, he had to have a book. All right. While you're looking at tons of awards, he got the purple heart Mm. presidential citations. That story alone. Yeah, dude, you could sell a million books. All right, so what ends up happening as a result? So the guys that end up successfully uh, bombing the hear you, they come back. I think at this point, it's actually getting kind of dark. And so what ends up happening is uh, Fletcher orders his carriers, because he knows that his planes are also going to be coming in low on fuel, he orders his carriers forward to be able to retrieve them easier. 
I think he even turns on his searchlights, which is a huge no-no. Because at night, you're basically just advertising where you are. Yeah. And you can't see enemies come. Well, I mean, radar will pick them up, but you can't see them. But also, the big thing, too, is that how Yamamoto had started bringing his battleships up. The Japanese were famous for night fighting. They were the experts at at ship-to-ship nighttime fighting. And so Fletcher's like, we... He knows they just put four aircraft carriers out of commission. He's, I think the quote was, we won a great victory today. I'm not going to do anything to ruin it. So as soon as he's able to retrieve his planes, he ends up hauling ass out of there with the Hornet and the um, Enterprise. Um, the Yorktown, at that point, they had kept her and reduced her list, and they were getting ready to tow her. She, another destroyer pulled up next to us to plug in and supply her power, and they were getting ready, I think, to pull her a Japanese submarine got through the picket line while all this was going on and launched a torpedo. And I want to say the torpedo hit the destroyer because it broke the destroyer in half. So it would have had to hit that side and then damaged the Yorktown enough that it had to be scuttled and left and it sunk the, so that served its purpose. And I'm sure hopefully they got as many people off of it by then as possible. They, everyone had already been off of it. And by that time it didn't go down quick. They just determined that like, the damage they received from that set back enough of the repairs that they didn't have time to re-repair it. So well, it was just a shield at that point. So good that it hit that, that one. The the fact that it hit that and that sub didn't try to get the, you know, try to find the Hornet or the Enterprise. I mean, that, that pretty much was the shield for the entire yeah. fleet. Use that. But so kind of the end result of what ends up happening is the Americans pull out of the system, the system, it's not Star Wars. They end up pulling <laughs> out of the area. I've been watching a lot of Star Wars. I'm sorry. They end up pulling out of the area. And um, yeah, so Yamamoto comes into where I think the carriers were, or maybe he gets close. Enough ships have, from the carrier uh, groups for the Japanese were all picking up survivors and everything like that. Um, did the did your boy get picked up and held captive by the Japanese, or did the Americans find him? Um because I know they probably did a lot of uh, scout scouting flights after that from Midway once the Japanese had left the area to search for downed pilots. Uh, let me see. Look that up. I'm going to go into a little bit more. Just the end result. Okay. Okay. End result happens. Four Japanese carriers sunk. 2,900 Japanese casualties and 294 planes were lost compared to the Americans. One carrier, the Yorktown. 703 casualties and 103 planes lost. Did you find it? Yeah. So this ties in so great to what you talked about. So it says, um, as he was exiting his aircraft and floating in the ocean, he hid underneath his seat cushion for hours to avoid Japanese strafing attacks and witness subsequent dive bombing and attacks, just like we talked about, and the sinking of three of the four Japanese aircraft. After dark... Gay felt it was safe to inflate his life raft. He was then rescued by a Navy consolidated Catalina. Navy Catalina. Yeah, those things were bad. As somebody looked that up, it's cool. The plane, it, yeah. He spent over 30 hours in the water. Gay was later flown to the USS Vincinas. I bad, bad pronunciation, I'm sure. Before being transferred home, of the squadron's 30 pilots and radio men, Gay was the only survivor. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, so some longer standing things. Again, from this from this battle, this is the turning point. Literally, for, for me, there might be, you know, there might be other differing opinions, but for me, this is literally the turning point of the Pacific War. 
Um, it was the midway point. It was the, it was exactly the tide it, turning. And what ended up happening is kind of as an end result of this, and what led to the decline also, because the Japanese never had carrier strength like this again. And part of the reason for that is they got to a point also where they used their carriers almost as decoys or bait just to try to draw enemy forces out to sink them. They didn't really have any strength to them or anything like that. And the reason for that is is Jap- the Japanese lost a ton, not just of pilots, but the air crews and the mechanics that were all on these ships that died in explosions and everything like that. A lot of guys made it off these carriers, but I mean, when you see like the numbers of casualties these are all guys that just got torched or incinerated during these explosions or got caught below decks. And not to mention all the pilots in the air that launched off of these carriers, the carriers weren't there to receive them again. So they exactly. had nowhere else to land. There were two light carriers in someone's fleet. Oh, okay. And so I think they could probably retrieve some planes and everything like that. I think at the same time, if the Japanese, it was practiced and I don't know, this had to have been terrifying doing it. I don't think it was actually practiced, but I think there was instruction on how to do it. Um, planes knew how to land in the water and ditch. And so I think they okay. would get close to like a ship and planes would just have a designated area to lay down in the water and then bail out. Come and, and get picked Exactly. Up. I think that happened, that happened quite a bit, but they still couldn't replace the losses of all those. Those, I mean, four of those carriers had so many pilots and air crews that trying to then replace those, they didn't have the training capabilities to do that. No, and it was such a, like we talked about in the beginning, it was such a regimented training program Mm -hmm. that they went through. If you didn't have the means of planes to train new people or any sort of... Well, now you also don't have experienced pilots to teach incoming pilots their skills. Yeah. Now you have experienced American pilots going up against inexperienced. It, it's a complete flip-flop. It used to be during the very start, you would have experienced pilots going against inexperienced American pilots. And it flipped to the point where during kind of some of the later engagements, there's one that's the Battle of the Mariana Trench, and they called it, no, what was it called? Battle of the Philippine Sea, sorry. And it was near the Mariana Trench, I think is why they called it, but they called it the Great Mariana Turkey Shoot because the losses for... The Japanese for pilots, it ended up coming out to like five to one on the American losses. The pilots were so inexperienced that the Americans said one of the guys was like, it's just like a good old fashioned turkey shoot back home. They were just knocking these guys out of the air. So, you know, I think that was, you know, definitely, in my opinion, the the turning point for it. Well, not a whole lot of this account of Midway really made it back to the Japanese mainland, did it? Mm-mm. No. Um, I think the Japanese, I'm wondering if they called it, I don't know if they went full North Korea and called it a victory, mm-hmm. but I think they maybe said that they had, they reported on the American carrier sunk, maybe one of theirs damaged or something like that. But no, for the most part, the, for the, the entire war, the Jap- the main Japanese populace had no idea they knew it was going good, and I don't think they ever received any indication it was going poor, so they believed it was going well the entire time, regardless of if their families kept getting asked to recruit or people getting pulled out of it and conscripted, uh, conscript, conscripted into service. <laughs> Jesus. But, like, yeah, like, I don't know, man. Like, that's that's all, like, the facts and the story and just all the pieces that had to come together, the luck and... I don't I don't know. I 
this kind of just sounds completely counter to what I'm about to say, but I don't necessarily really believe in coincidence. I don't necessarily really believe in a higher power guiding things. I don't necessarily believe in fate or karma or anything like that. But I 100% agree that dumb luck is just a thing. Oh, yeah. Like, there may not be so many forces at work. Ghosts, not, you know, not real big on that. Mm. But there is something to life when you just see so many of these different things that happen just out of happenstance, just out of um, the guys that you were talking about. The stars stars align for you. Yeah. The intelligence branch putting out just a plane is day in English, no encodement or anything mm-hmm. like that saying, Hey, we're running low on potable water here in the midway and the Japanese jumping on it and not thinking this could be some sort of a trap. Like they've been sending coded messages left and right, but somehow this one comes mm-hmm. through clear as day. Like the luck that it takes for that to happen, because if they didn't know, I mean, I'm sure they probably would have sent probably more cover for Midway, even if they weren't sure that AF was Midway. Mm-hmm. But just the sheer luck of the confirmation that they got is the reason why they were ready for this whole entire thing. Well, and, you know, the Japanese even tried to kind of back themselves up on this, and it's something that I missed talking about in the beginning, but they had this whole plan set up at the very beginning of this that they were going to, they launched an attack, actually a smaller force um, on the Aleutian Islands up up in Alaska, that Alaskan mm-hmm. island chain. And what their plan was is they were going to oh, launch yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, they launched that and it was supposed to be, it was a completely diversionary force. So it was supposed to draw some of the American forces up there. And then what would happen is when it drew them up there, they could engage and do whatever and try to weaken the American forces. And then that would even weaken them more so for Midway. But because they knew that the Aleutian Island campaign from the Japanese was part of their diversion, they sent just a like a like a smaller force that was just able to kind of keep them busy. Well, not to sound culturally inappropriate, but what in the fuck are a bunch of Japanese people going to do in the Aleutian Islands? They thought that it would be strategically important because if they could be in that position, it would give them some type of range to either hit like mainland Alaska, like Juneau in that area, or they could even actually come down and maybe hit Seattle. There's just nothing there though. It's There's so, a base. It's, but it's so cold. I know. And if they don't get that foothold with one carrier, I know it, it was but the just, whole thing is, is it, I don't know if they even really intended the, to stay there. Maybe it was just them thinking like we can attack here. Cause maybe the Americans think that this is important and they'll send some people up. It was their diversionary it was, but it was a god awful diversionary tactic, and who knows? It would have been another good. Carrier, it, it might be good if you don't know about it, but when somebody yeah. knows about it, it kind of loses its its effect. I just figure if because I don't know how far away the Aleutian Islands mm-hmm. are away from Hawaii or Pearl Harbor or anything like that, but it was just so far out into right field that it just didn't seem like it was going to do much. Like, oh, they're up in Alaska with one carrier. I know. What what's going to happen? I know. But at that point, maybe they thought we were so – because that's another thing, too. They thought that American morale was super low and we were, like, insanely desperate. Well, they misunderstood that everyone was just pissed off yeah, it, it and ready to do something. Low and so, morale, it was just desperation, too. That's, well, that's what they thought it was. They thought we were going to be so desperate to try to take out one of their carriers or do something. We would overcommit forces to do things. Yeah. But, again, this, this all goes back to the brains in the room and – just understanding that, you know, 
the, the whole thing is, is this was won by literally everybody. Everybody doing a little something outside the box. Rochefort and his team being able to have something in their brain that clicked and put those codes together to be able to decipher this. Rochefort being ballsy and sending out the signal to Midway mm-hmm. and determining what it was. McCluskey being like, you know what, guys, let's hold on for a few more minutes. I know it's risky. We might run out of fuel, but what's that? Is that a fucking ship? Yeah, dude. Luck. You're seeing just the water Not only that, parted. but McCluskey had to be in that position at that time, and the Nautilus had to evade them for that amount of time to keep the ship in that area, and the Nautilus even had to be in that position to keep the ship. Like, everything just falling into place. Yes. And then being the first group in to cause the distraction to allow the other group to come in to go ahead and finish off the carry. Like, just yeah. all dumb fucking luck. And it's great that it turned out this way. Mm-hmm. Luckily, there's a lot of stories in America's history where it seems like luck was on our side. I'm sure there are. Somehow, through all the not great things mm-hmm. that America has done, this somehow is, this, luck they just created shows as up. much of their own luck in this situation as possible and still got just some blind luck in this scenario yeah. and, and were able to win. If you set yourself up to be able to receive the luck that you get, you're going to be in just a far better situation. Yep. All right, man. You got anything else on it? No, I I know that this one was yours, and I just kind of sat back and let you go. But it it's such an exciting story that, and it's like I texted you earlier in the week. Like this is the excitement in this whole thing is just tailor made for the plot of a movie. I know it is. They don't they have did, to add shit. I know to this. they made that movie a couple of years ago, and it was one of those Roland Emmerich like disaster movies. I think he did like Day After Tomorrow, and he always does like the worldwide disaster ones. Mm-hmm. But like. I was thinking about this this morning before I came over. I was like, this thing is so... I wish there was... I know there is interest in this. They always joke that like once you reach a certain age, you got to have two interests. It's either World War II history or smoking meats. Have you heard that? (laughs) No. (laughs) Once you reach a certain age, those are your choices. But, you know, because a lot of these... For the most part, most of these people are gone. I think the scope and importance of this kind of history definitely gets backseated to more... I don't know, just like entertaining, yeah, entertaining, like, you know, topics. But the whole thing is if they made a movie about this, like as a, it's like a fucking, it starts out as like a fucking underdog story. You know, we got punched in the teeth and, you know, Pearl Harbor. Then it becomes like a spy thriller about this guy Mm. who used to be in Japan. And then he came over and he's using his skills in the intelligence division and they crack the code. And then it becomes in the third act, this huge, action piece with just the battle and you know dick best flying in there the second time to finish it and all these heroes and fuck man like why 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 don't you have there's no focus on the movie of the guy in the water i think they might show a guy in a water at one point yeah but just like that guy show from his point of view of those you have a whole ships. movie just in and of itself right there i know it's just it, it needs to be remade it needs to be remade right or man this this itself deserves a miniseries yeah. Leading up to it and everything. Un- unfortunately, now I feel like the way that history is going to get passed on eventually, and this is just, I I, I don't want to do a soapbox about the dumbing down of society or anything like that, but there's going to be a lot of this stuff moving forward away from World War One and World War Two. that some of the better accounts of historical accuracy is going to come from movies, and movies just aren't historically accurate. Mm-hmm. And it's a bummer that it happens that way. I know. But it's because like situations like what is this not entertaining enough? Yeah. Like I knew I knew the Midway movie, it does focus on this and it does the code breaking and everything. But then they like shoehorn, you know, you gotta shoe shore eh. 
shoehorn the love story in there for some reason, even though it's not big, but like this in itself, you don't need to embellish this. No. This thing has everything. Uh, yeah. How are you going to get a ship that was damaged? It was going to take three plus weeks to fix up and running in 72 hours mm-hmm. just to go out there as a skeleton of itself. I don't know what percent complete it was, but in 72 hours for that thing to be floatable and to be able to launch off again. And it, it led to, you know, one of the groups ended up launch- destroying one of the Japanese aircraft. Yeah, th- there's no hyperbole needed in that whole entire part of mm-hmm. that. It's just, Do it's right on there. The down. I, yeah, th- this whole thing was just awesome. There's some of the, Obviously, you're more geared towards a lot of World War II stuff, and I, I appreciate it because there's a lot of this stuff that flies kind of not within my radar. Mm-hmm. And so when you bring it up and I get to look into it, I'm just immediately like the first 10 minutes into a book, first 10 minutes into another podcast, the first 10 minutes into just a little bit of research, a documentary. I'm just immediately like, oh, shit, this is why he's into this. This mm-hmm. makes total sense to me. And where you bring a lot of this stuff in, I feel like my brain works in a little bit different way towards like killers and mm-hmm. cults and different things like that. I totally understand why you lock in on this stuff. Same thing like when we did Library of Alexandria. I've heard about it. I had known about it. But until I actually dove into it myself and mm-hmm. really got the feeling for what it was, it just immediately becomes like this is notable. This needs to be talked about and it needs to be encapsulated in a better way than just a a movie done by Christopher Nolan or anything like that. I think that's what why I have so much fun with this. And I'm not gonna say why we're so sick. I was gonna say why this is for us though. Like I think the reason that like I enjoy doing this so much is that you have like a knowledge set that differs from mine. But when I start to study the stuff that you bring up and want to talk about, I'm like, yes, I can instantly see why this is interesting. It just never, you know, you have your lanes. Yeah. And everything. And I'm like, I just never put my blinker on and turned it into this lane. But now that I'm in this lane, like I want to talk about this and see how interesting this stuff is. So I think it's, I'd like the fact that we do compliment each other in that way. Yeah. Dude, we I, just away from this, I was thinking about it the other day and we've known each other for fucking 12 years at this point. Mm-hmm. And we still learn about each other almost every single week that we do this yeah. because of the things that we go into and the things that we mm-hmm. check into. Like, it's just, it's uh, a new way to see something completely different that you never would have thought of. We're building, we're building our friendship. Absolutely. All right, guys. Hope you enjoyed the episode and uh, hit us up and join us next week. Peace. All right, guys. Hey, thank you so much for making it through another episode and uh, sticking with us. If uh, you want to kind of follow up on the next upcoming episodes, get some teasers. Uh, Adam, can they get us on the Twitter? They can get us on the Twitter. Our Twitter handle is historically high. That's historically H-I. Nice. And uh, on the Instagram? Our Instagram is historically high pod. That's historically high P-O-D. And what happens if your social media inept? If you have any issues where you can't figure out social media, our email is historicallyhighpodcast at gmail.com. We set up a landline. <laughs> Just in case. Uh, you guys can go ahead and shoot us any question, comments, or even maybe suggestions for future episodes, something you guys want to hear. Yeah, high thoughts, questions, anything like that. We're always open. We'll always get back to you. Hell yeah, guys. See you on the next episode. Peace. Peace.